Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Today's episode is brought to you by BetOnline.ag. Sign up with BetOnline.ag today and score a 50% bonus to use on this week's loaded betting board. Simply use promo code SHIRDOG and up to $2,500 worth of sportsbook bonuses will be added to your bankroll instantly. In addition to the biggest bonus around, BetOnline posts the most odds on every major sport. You will never miss an opportunity to get in on the action at BetOnline. Once again, that's promo code SHIRDOG to score a 50% bonus. Sign up at BetOnline.ag today. Because you can. to a Sure Dog Radio Network special UFC roundtable. Here's your host, Jack Encarnacio. And welcome, friends, to another edition of the Sure Dog Radio Network roundtable. It is UFC International Fight Week 2017, and they've got a doubleheader coming for you Friday night and Saturday evening with a Tough 25 finale headlined by the UFC debut of Justin Gaethje as he takes on Michael Johnson in the main event, Jesse Taylor and Diego Lima in the Tough 25 Redemption finale, and then of course the big Saturday night pay-per-view. Both of these events emanating from T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas as Amanda Nunez defends the UFC Women's Bantamweight Championship in the rematch against Valentina Shevchenko at a new UFC interim middleweight champion to be crowned as Yoel Romero meets Robert Whitaker. I'm your host, Jack Encarnacio. Please, you could be here with us in the Global Authority in MMA to break down what has traditionally been one of the biggest weekends on the UFC calendar year. They tried to load this uh, weekend up, but due to a lot of different circumstances, didn't quite end up with what feels like a bigger card, but it's going to be a massive month of July writ large. Uh, not only this card, but come towards the end of the of the month, a uh, bit of the more heavy artillery we're used to with Jones versus Cormier, the uh, Tyron Woodley, uh, Damian Maya title fight happening. They're going to do Cerrone and Lawler, um, Chris Cyborg going for the featherweight championship, and the uh, new UFC Tuesday night Dana White contender series on Fight Pass coming up. So uh, things going to be kicking into gear uh, here in the month of July. We're going to get it started. And uh, we've assembled a hell of a table for you for this back-to-back. First up, of course, he is the cornerstone of the SureDog Roundtables. He is SureDog.com's administrative editor, host of the Jordan Breen Show here on the SRN, and Press Row. Jordan Breen. Jordan, um, I think we've felt bigger Independence Day weekend UFC cards over the years, for sure. But it is International Fight Week, and who knows, maybe it'll it'll raise the stock of uh, fighters like Amanda Nunez, who otherwise wouldn't get this kind of promotional muscle uh, you know, because of, you know, fights like Dillashaw and uh, Garbrandt and even the GSP fight that they looked at for certain points in time for this weekend not happening. Knowing that GSP wouldn't be able to go for the summer anyway, him having told them ahead of time he would be ready for November. Great on them. Jack, I mean, I, I heard the way you couched this ahead of time. It's traditionally been a major week. It's been traditionally a 
big piece of the seasonal calendar. The UFC's loved a piece in the Zufa era, major cards around New Year's Eve to New Year weekend, Memorial Day weekend, Independence Day weekend, even smaller cards, you know, between USC, WEC. We're going to go to Columbus every year in March. They got the Arnolds. And TJ DeSantis and I in the Press Row segment this week talked about exactly this, this decay of expected, well-loved, calculable, familiar MMA traditions, especially on the UFC side of things. God, even New Year's Eve in Japan is a stronger tradition than the things the UFC base around, you know, now like the, the schedule has changed entirely. It's predicated on what management groups in various cities is WME brokering deals with to bring a card there. They're going to Edmonton in a matter of weeks. A man just died. Tim Hag. Oh, yeah, he fought in the UFC and they don't give a damn. This is where we're at now. So even if they tried to load this card up, it still falls short. That said, this is still hardcore fan heaven type stuff. Even if one of the two titles on the line this weekend is a bit of a sham with Robert Whitaker and Yoel Romero, it is still a brilliant middleweight fight that gives us a number one with a bullet middleweight contender for Michael Bisping that is not George St. Pierre. And by SureDog.com official count, 10 ranked top 10 fighters this weekend. A couple other people on the contenders lists just on that periphery as well. There are great fights this weekend, but because of how the first six months of the WME era has gone, because of them floundering on pay-per-view in the absence of Conor McGregor, Ronda Rousey, every time we, we have these roundtables, Jack, no matter how exquisite the card is, no matter even if there's an exquisite card in another one the night beforehand, it goes back to like UFC 211, and even 212, although the card less robust on the whole, we start these things. I, you know, we open up the round table. You throw it to me. I attest to their greatness. And the question's always, well, who really cares? Is this thing going to draw? Mm-hmm. We're in that we're in that hole again. It's just weirder and weirder because International Fight Week is supposed to mean something. But as time goes on, those familiar old landmarks, those monoliths, they're crumbling and falling at a if not alarming, then noticeable rate. Yeah, noticeable, I think, is a very apt term for it. Uh, but as you said, a ton to dig into, and um, fortunately, the Sherdog Radio audience is uh, homesteaded enough in MMA that there's just a lot to chew on, uh, regardless of marquee value necessarily this weekend. So we'll get to that, of course. Uh, also on the round table this time round, joining us for the first time on the table, though you do know his voice from the SRN airwaves, uh, he is Sherdog Radio contributor Anthony Walker. Anthony, welcome to the round table. And uh, where are you at on International Fight Week 2017? Uh, first, thanks for having me. Uh, definitely, definitely fun times joining the round table. Actually, my second time. My, my first time, it was when TJ subbed in for my you bust. for 203. Makes sense. That's eh, all right. Sorry, my first time working with you on this one. So mm-hmm. definitely a good moment for me. Um, as far as International Fight Week, I mean, this is, in name, it's International Fight Week. In reality, it's nothing like what we're used to. I mean, even last uh, last year, the UFC 200 debacle that it ended up being after John Jones's uh, steroid failure and, and and the subsequent car changes and, of course, the uh, the Brock Lesnar and, and, excuse me, Conor McGregor debacles on that card. I mean, they had something big going on. This one, while for the diehard fans like us, I mean, this is great. I, when you talk about one of the best fights the UFC can make, I, I think Yoel Romero versus Robert Whitaker, second to probably Khabib versus Tony Ferguson is the absolute best fight that can be made in the UFC. 
So I'm happy about that. The the question is like how many people are going to be so happy that they buy it? I, I don't think it's going to be much in comparison to what we've seen. But either way, you know, we're diehards. Let's enjoy it and be diehards. Mm-hmm. We are dialed in. Rounding out the table is a SureDog.com contributor. You can catch his pre-UFC event previews on the site. You can also catch his scribblings at BloodyElbow.com and the great Heavy Hands podcast with Patrick Wyman. Connor Rebush is back with us on the table. Connor, feelings ahead of Tough 25 finale and UFC 213. I got a strong feeling just then, Jack. He, you know, when when uh, when Max Holloway fought Cub Swanson, Joe Rogan was on commentary, and we'd all been watching Max Holloway for a while. He was favored to win, but it was clearly the first time that Joe had ever watched Max Holloway fight since the Conor McGregor bout. He mm. was like, wow, this kid's really surprising me. Mm. Jack, that's how it was to hear you forget that Anthony had done this show once before. <laughs> I didn't know that was you coming know? for I mean, me at all. Wow. That was really well masked. <laughs> I thought really? that was such a great salient point about how missable UFCs are that even Rogan isn't dialed in, and then you waylaid my ass. Uh, just just a ribbing. Just a really belabored setup for a ribbing. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm looking forward to the card. It was originally, I believe, also it was supposed to be the crew or the Garbrandt-Dillashaw fight. Um quite a while back. So there were a lot of things I think intended for this weekend that are bigger than it is, but I agree, man. Um, we had Holloway Aldo at featherweight Ferguson could be, but still hopefully, hopefully coming someday at lightweight and at middleweight. We have Yoel Romero and Robert Whitaker. Whitaker has proven himself to be a top contender. Yoel Romero's done the same. Both guys on long win streaks, both knockout artists like that is absolutely one of the best fights the UFC can make. And honestly, it could be a really bad card or a pair of cards built up around just that fight, and I would still be excited for it. And fortunately, I think one of the hallmarks of this new UFC era, even though we have a lot of things being overlooked, as Jordan um, very you know, rightfully brought up, is that the Shelby Maynard era of matchmaking seems really strong. Uh, they've done a really great job of being a little more mindful of how they match their prospects and building contenders towards each other so that we get not only the best versions of developing fighters, but also just the best, most meaningful matchups. Even when the names aren't that recognizable these days, more often than not, the matchup makes sense. And I think that is kind of the story of these cards, that while we may be missing some of those really big fan favorite names, both of these cards from bottom to top are pretty solid in terms of who's fighting and what the matchups do for them and for their divisions. So I'm looking forward to it. I think we have some good stuff set to happen on both of these cards. I think that's a good point as it regards the uh, the matchmaking regime. Uh, noticed in preparing for recent roundtables, for instance, uh, in recent months, the higher I get up the card, the more I can tell just by assessing kind of the recent records of the guys that the higher you get on the card, the more accomplished the fighters are and the higher the stakes yeah. are. Yeah, Yeah, and these days they're not just putting the debut guys at the bottom against whoever. Like they used to sign like prospect versus prospect all the time. Yeah. That still happens some, but uh, a lot of these fights, you know, like Ishihara gets kind of a comeback against Maynard, and, uh, you know, Angela Hill gets a comeback against Ashley Yoder, and Curtis Blades gets a really reasonable test against Daniel Omialanchuk. Like they're trying more, I think, to build these fighters, where I think the Joe Silva era was always kind of defined by uh, trial by fire more than anything else. Well, we've got uh, Joe Silva uh, being inducted into the UFC Hall of Fame as part of International Fight Week this week, and uh, more than ever, despite kind of the relative weakness and thinness of the card, they're doing all kinds of. Um, fan interaction things, streaming them all on Fight Pass. So it does feel like something special is going on. They've got the live uh, studio coverage with, you know, live studio audiences on on the Fox Sports 1 programming. So mm-hmm. they're rolling out all the bells and whistles. That that, that feeling is sinking in. We'll, we'll see uh, what kind of atmosphere it 
contributes to in T-Mobile Arena on back-to-back evenings. And the first uh, fight card, of course, before us is Friday night's offering, bringing to a conclusion this redemption season of The Ultimate Fighter. This past Wednesday, Jesse Taylor defeating James Krause uh, via third-round top guillotine submission, putting him to sleep and uh, punching his ticket to face Diego Lima. And uh, we're going to go rapid fire through the prelims for both the Tough 25 finale and UFC 213, and then go fight by fight for our main card as per our custom. There will be two Fight Pass prelims on Friday night as part of the Tough 25 finale event, and uh, there will be four prelims on Fox Sports 1 before the main card. Six fights there begins on Fox Sports 1 as well, so a very busy Friday night on Fox Sports 1 for the UFC. And they're going to open up proceedings with the first fight through the curtain of the weekend, Tisha Torres at women's strawweight facing Juliana Lima. Torres actually in as a replacement for uh, Amanda Rebus, who was flagged by USADA uh, in the preparation for this fight. So she steps in. Lima now 3-2 and two in the UFC with losses to Joanna Jacek and Carla Esparza. She's coming off a unanimous decision victory over J.J. Aldrich in December. And for Tisha Torres, of course a veteran of Tough 20, suffered her first pro loss to Rose Namajunas in April of 2016 and uh, in her most recent outing defeated Beck Rollins via unanimous decision in February. The second fight past prelim will be Gray Maynard versus Taruta Ishihara, as Connor just pointed out. Uh, Maynard now has lost six of his, la- of his last eight in the UFC, most recently losing to Ryan Hall via unanimous decision in December. Ishihara uh, drew with Mizuto Hirota, beat Julian Eros and Horacio Gutierrez, and lost to Artem Loboff in his UFC campaign. The Loboff fight most recently uh, lost in November in Belfast. Fox Sports 1 prelims on Friday night start with Jessica I versus Aspen Ladd. I has lost five of her last six in the cage, including a split decision to Betch Kohea in September, though most gave Jessica I the first two rounds of that fight. She's also uh, been defeated by Sarah McMahon, uh, Juliana Pena, and Misha Tate. And for Aspen Ladd, this is her UFC debut after a 5-0 run in the Invicta cage. Ed Herman versus C.B. Dalloway will be up next at 205 pounds in a battle of uh, grizzled vets at this point. Herman now 23-12 in his pro campaign, 36 years old, while C.B. Dalloway is 15-8 and and 33 years old. Uh, Herman's been an up-down, up-down proposition lately in terms of wins-loss, wins-loss in the UFC octagon. He lost to Nikita Krilov via head kick in July at UFC 201. Prior to that, though, defeating Tim Boach, who's on the rise, with the knee and punches via TKO in January 2016. So uh, keep staying alive when it looks like the uh, corners turned and then Herman's career. C.B. Dalloway, meanwhile, lost to Nate Marquardt via uh, knockout and has lost his last three. Um, Marquardt most recently, December 2015. He also lost to Michael Bisping and Leota Machida. Uh... Up next will be James Krause versus Tom Galicchio at 170 pounds. Krause and Galicchio, uh, both semifinalists on this current season of Ultimate Fighter. Of course, Krause, as I mentioned, losing to Taylor, and Galicchio losing a decision to Diego Lima in the semifinals. Krause uh, was on roster when he went into the house, uh, coming off wins against Shane Campbell and Darren Crutchshank. In the house, he defeated Johnny Nunez and Ramsey Nijem, but lost to Jesse Galicchio, a veteran of Tough 22. Uh, lost to Marcin Rosek on that season back uh, years ago, and here on Tough 25, defeated Eddie Gordon via first-round submission and Justin Edwards via first-round submission before losing to Lima. And in the main event of Friday night's prelims, it'll be Angela Hill versus Ashley Yoder at women's strawweight. Hill, of course, a veteran of Tough 20, having lost to eventual champ Carla Esparza in the house, came back to beat Emily Kagan, but lose to Tisha Torres and Rose Namajunas, was cut from the UFC as a result, jumped to Invicta, won four straight, came right back to the UFC in February, where she lost her return fight to Jessica Andrade via unanimous decision for Yoder. Uh, she lost her UFC debut to Justin Kish via unanimous decision in December. Prior to that, was on a five-fight win streak. Uh, Yoder was about the only fighter on the uh, Friday night Tough 25 card that seemed to have some issues with the early weigh-ins. Uh, went right down to the last minute, um, so watch for that. Coming at 115.5 before she could get on the scale. 
So that's the breakdown of the prelims on Bypass and FS1 Friday night. Jordan Breen, get us started. Rapid fire, please. I like Tisha Torres over Juliana Lima. With Tisha Torres, like, shouts to her stepping in late because we had no idea when she might come back. Last time she won a fight, she said, hey, maybe I'm going to go back, get my master's degree. She bought a house with Raquel Pennington. Now they're engaged to be married. A lot going on in Tisha Torres' life. So if she didn't want to, like, rush back to the cage immediately, we'd understand. But... I'm happy she's back. That said, I think she's going to win. I think she'll probably win 30-27s across the board. But I don't know if I'm alone in this. She's just such a brilliant athlete. And such clear, like she's so clearly one of the best strawweights in the world. But I feel like you're always kind of left wanting more. Even when she's blistering an opponent and she gets them hurt, she can never finish them. She can never tap them when they're compromised. I know the finishes aren't everything. And I think she's going to go out and use superior wrestling, superior hand speed, and get it done against Juliana Lima and probably take a clean sweep but uh, i just always feel like with torres like seeing what a physically gifted athlete she is you're just like left wanting more and it doesn't just manifest uh in terms of whether she stops her opponent or not it really is how hard she pours it on them and how like little it seems to lead to nonetheless i think it'll be a very tisha torres like performance and uh, put some money towards a wedding Trudeau Ishihar and Gray Maynard. Uh, <laughs> Jack, I know that you said Ashley Yoder is the only person who struggled on the scales. I know that Gray Maynard made it up in plenty of time, but holy shit, he looks dreadful. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of actual performance, too, I mean, he lost a fight to Ryan Hall, and not even because of the grappling. He got, he got kicked he was to death. Out kickboxed by Ryan he Hall. Was, I mean, in the last seven years, in the last seven years, Here's who Gray Manners beat. Clay Guida in possibly the worst 25-minute fight in UFC history. Fernando Bruno, who you would not know from any other Brazilian ever if I put a random headshot in front of you. And are you ready for the last one? Do you know the third last person that Gray Maynard has a UFC win over? Kenny Florian. When was the last time Kenny Florian put on a pair of gloves? It sucks to see because he really is a guy that just he fell off a cliff. But Gray Maynard shot, and I think that's everything here. He's still a better wrestler than Torito Ishihara is, but I don't think it matters. I think he just gets stuck in weird space, gets kicked at, punched at. Torito Ishihara should maybe spend less time with strippers and go-go girls and focusing on his Instagram account and not losing to Artem Lobov. But there's a reason this man's over minus 300 against a guy who very easily could have been UFC lightweight champion once upon a time. Sad story, but Gray Maynard is absolutely at the end as any kind of like meaningful UFC competitor. Teru Ishihara, if he doesn't knock him out, heaven forbid he doesn't. I'd almost rather it be a 15-minute just a, a boxer size fest, kickboxer size fest, rather than see Gray Maynard get stretched again. Like James Krause over Tom Galicchio, I think if you are aware of their careers prior and even if you saw them on the finale, I mean, or on Tough 25, I should say, if you watch the the last uh, fight of the season, James Krause had an opportunity to, he had Jesse Taylor's back, he could have tapped him out, I think he's better than Galicchio is on the feet, he has a better chin, he's certainly more durable. Uh, Krause isn't a perfect fighter, he's a guy that in the UFC, whether he's at 170 or 155, will maybe win some, but always kind of be perpetually close to the bubble, but Galicchio, I mean, hasn't made it to that point, period, for a reason, and I think Krause probably is able to finish him, whether that means lining him up for some fistic handwork and then a head kick or whether that means transition to the ground game tap them out i like james Krause. i like aspen lad close over jessica i 
Jessica, I, I mean, if you look at her recent record and the run she's had since she tested positive for marijuana, which by the way, you realize she broke her back as a teenager, right? She was like never supposed to walk or compete in a goddamn sport again. She's not allowed to smoke weed. She broke her back. I I will, I will say her, her, uh, uh, my dad and his friends were smoking and I have a distant relationship with him. So that's the only reason I was there was a classic uh, I didn't actually <laughs> inhale excuse. <laughs> it's and it's the kind of I didn't inhale excuse you get in mixed martial arts. Yeah. That notwithstanding, this is still a winnable fight for Jessica I, but I think she's going to be overtaken by volume and the fact that if they go to the ground, Aspen Lad is just a better fighter than she is. You know, you may remember Jessica I hitting a technically bizarre standing arm triangle choke on uh, as well a Frosto or something like that back in Bellator. But Aspen Ladd is a really sharp grappler and a really damn good prospect in addition to how young she is. And more than that, I, I think what she lacks in experience, high level experience. I know a lot of women's fighters we see come up uh, have extensive amateur backgrounds, with La- which Ladd certainly does. Uh, in this case, I mean, when you're considering the women's game, it's not good enough to look at someone like Aspen Ladd and go like, oh, she's five and oh, this is someone that, you know, had a, a ton of, of amateur fights and her only loss was to Cynthia Calvillo, who's the UFC's new darling shiny thing. So she has consistently thrown her amateur and pro career, which is more extensive than meets the eye, shown to just be a very good, competent top position grappler who works a steady jab. Even if she can't have a ton of success with Jessica I putting her on the ground, holding her there, beating her up, getting dominant positions, Jessica I is so inactive for stretches on the feet sometimes that I think that's more than enough for Aspen Ladd to just keep sticking the jab out there, work it, work it, work it, pick up rounds. I suspect it'll be close, but I like Aspen Ladd in a uh, 29-28, maybe a splitter type decision. Based on their age and their general profile, Herman with his injuries, Dalloway with his historic penchant for running into knockouts and submissions. I got a weird feeling that maybe Ed Herman, a guy who, by the way, like we just watched Tim Boach throw a head kick and ice Johnny Hendricks. Ed Herman, it was it's like less than a year and a half ago that he iced Tim Boach really badly. That said, even with Dalloway's recent run, even with him getting clobbered by a struggling and old, wizened Nate Marquardt, I still like Dalloway here. I think he can make the most of his wrestling. He's competent on the feet when he has gas. But going back to his best middleweight days, there's always that threat of Dalloway winning the first two rounds and then just like running out of gas and desperately needing to hang on. Ed Herman can hit harder than I think people realize. And he's really his bread and butter has always been as a grounded pounder that's able to open up quick submissions. I mean, that is someone that could maybe find Dalloway. I think there's real upset potential there, but I'm going to turn down my gut for now. I, I have plenty of gut feelings to rely on for 213, and I think there might be a quota. So I'll take CB Dalloway on points. As far as Angela Hill and Ashley Yoder go, uh, Ashley Yoder may have deserved to get her hand raised against Justine Kish. Maybe she would have beat Angela Hill if this was back on uh, Tough 20, but we're talking different times now. Angela Hill, Angela Hill did exactly what you want to hope a, a prospect who's baptized by fire can do, you know, the, the skin, the skin hardens and, uh, they become a badass about it. 
Angela Hill is a legitimate top 10, 115 pounder now. I don't think Ashley Yoder is. Yoder is, she's got physical advantages here, but I don't think she's nearly good enough of a wrestler to put Angela Hill on the ground or put her in any sticky situations with any regularity. And in spite of the height and the reach advantage that she enjoys, Angela Hill's infinitely better than she is on the feet. Not only do I think Hill carves her up all the way over 15 minutes if it goes that long, I think there's a real chance that Hill just piles it up with punches and leg kicks and maybe finishes that bad boy off. All right, there's a breakdown from Jordan Breen of our Tough 25 finale prelims. A quick peek at the odds before we carry on. A bit out of order to Atisha Torres, a comfortable favorite over Lima, who's out there at plus 375. Isihara, a big favorite over Maynard, who's out there at plus 285. Krause is favorite over Glickio, Glickio at plus 335 at the moment. Aspen Ladd, slight favorite over Jessica I, who's out there at plus 110. C.B. Dalloway is favorited over Ed Herman, who's out there as the plus 165 underdog, and Angela Hill, a comfortable favorite over Ashley Yoder, who's plus 310 as we stand. Connor Rebush, your picks on the Tough 25 prelims. Uh, I'll start off with Tisha Torres and Juliana Lima. The first thing that I'm grateful for this matchup for is that it gives uh, all of the new young ladies they're signing for this division a break from being mauled by Juliana Lima, who has just been in like this... Uh, this sort of James Vick position for a while now where she just gets to feast on all of these young fighters. Uh, it, you know, in all likelihood, she, she just tends to lose to the people at the upper end of the division, but it's a chance for her, right? She, she beat JJ Aldrich. She showed a little more comfort on the feet was a little more fluid. She's making some strides, give her a chance against a, a, a real staple top 10 fighter in Tisha Torres. That being said, I agree with uh, Jordan's assessment. I think Tisha is just a little too much, uh, too good of an athlete, a little too quick, a little too good at mixing things up. Uh, her game is very well integrated. And even if Lima is starting to expand what has mostly just been like a power wrestling game, it still doesn't really flow together really smoothly. I think that's why she struggled with Carla Esparza. I assume it'll be the same reason she'll struggle with Tisha Torres. And uh, I do want to say, I think the one thing that Tisha really needs to get to that next level is to up her boxing game because uh, she has a lot of weird little ticks she does on the feet, a lot of like darting in with right hands. I think Tisha Torres working behind a pumping jab, moving her head, taking some angles as she moves forward could be a more effective, aggressive striker. And I just think lacking some of those boxing fundamentals, she doesn't feel comfortable doing that unless she's really, really outclassed someone. So that's why I think her upper echelon fights tend to be really, really close and uh, not altogether satisfying. Gray Maynard versus Taruta Ishihara. I assume that Ishihara is going to start Gray Maynard in the first round. He definitely tires. He's... Uh, you know, the Artem Lobov lost is not, it's not a good look for him, although I guess there's some poetic justice there. And Truda Ishihara, a guy who sort of imitates Conor McGregor, got uh, beaten by the ultimate Conor McGregor lackey. Uh, so uh, there's some justice there, I suppose. But even when he's tired, you know, we've seen in fights like with Mizuto Hirota, Ishihara still packs a huge punch. And uh, Maynard is going to have to out-wrestle him consistently for three rounds straight, which uh, I think will be very difficult considering his hard weight cut in order to get the win. So I'm thinking a first-round KO, if not that, possibly a uh, decision with a couple 10-8s from Ishihara. I think Aspen Ladd's going to beat Jessica I. I would call this the the power walking. This is the power walk to the uh, the crazy sprint that is Michael Johnson versus Justin Gaethje. This is the super low-impact version. And the difference between this and that fight is that Jessica I, who shares Michael Johnson's compulsion to kind of get dragged into other people's fights... 
um, the threshold for that happening to her is just very low. It's a low bar. And I think she tends to kind of panic or freak out and get into a brawl when at her best, she really is a very solid out fighting boxer. Um, so I think she'll probably land a lot of good shots on Ladd as she comes forward in the first round. Ladd is sort of the Pat Healy of this division now. She can soak up a lot of punishment, but she sure does soak up a lot of punishment. Not great at cutting off the cage, not particularly fast. But once she gets her hands on Jessica I, I think the fight's going to drain out of Jessica pretty quickly. And I expect Ladd to kind of dominate her once it goes to the ground. Uh, for Ed Herman and C.B. Dalloway, uh, this, to me, is a great example of how sensible the matchmaking has been in this new era of the UFC. Uh, it may not be a fight that raises a lot of eyebrows or generates a lot of interest, but it's a perfect fight to determine where these two guys currently are in their careers. Uh, both of them seem like they're nearing the end. I would call this sort of a sorting out uh, matchup. Dalloway's got the speed, and we God knows Ed Herman has anything but speed. He's one of the slowest guys who's ever competed in MMA, but he's just a very fundamentally sound and has always made that work for him. He's a surprisingly hard hitter. As Jordan said, he's got pretty solid boxing and Muay Thai fundamentals, uh, good grappling game, good ground and pound. And he's an opportuni opportunistic submission grappler. He's just a very crafty veteran. And I think that unless Dalloway puts him away in the first round, which could happen, he will start to slow and Herman's superior fundamentals are going to win out. So I like Ed Herman to win a decision there. Uh, I think James Krause is significantly better than he looked in, on the Ultimate Fighter. That's always been my problem with Tough as a platform is that oftentimes the guys who do the best on the show um, don't really go on to be great fighters. And a lot of the guys who go on to be really consistent performers struggle on the show. It's just not a format that matches up perfectly with the experience of professional fighters in actual pro competition. And I think James Krause is more capable of showing his best when he has eight weeks to prepare for a known opponent with the camp of his choice. Uh, we saw some nice improvements from him in his fight with Shane Campbell. I think he's been sharpening up his striking and his boxing. I hope that uh, the tough stint has not thrown off that development at all and he can continue developing. But even so, He's got to be favored over Tom Galicchio, who I think has probably improved on The Ultimate Fighter more than any other uh, single person. He's really developed a comfort on the feet that has not been present really throughout his entire career. But he's still a very unathletic, sort of sluggish striker and very hittable. Uh, he still kind of strikes like somebody who just learned. And James Krause, I expect to kind of piece him up on the feet and, uh, and quite possibly even uh, handle him on the ground unless Tom can get his back. And then finally, Angela Hill versus Ashley Yoder. you got to favor Angela Hill here. Um, earlier today, I did the uh, vivisection for this card uh, for Bloody Elbow, and I said I compared uh, Angela Hill's fighter development to the Mask of Zorro, in which Zorro's uh, instructor at the beginning of the movie, his fencing instructor, he shows him these circles on the ground, and he says, we have these large circles and then smaller concentric circles We'll start off on the largest circle, and by the time you're done training, you'll be in the center, moving around the smallest circle there is. And that's the development we're looking for from Angela Hill. She's very erratic. She moves a lot and tends to tire herself out. But over time, we are seeing her tighten up that game, make her movements a little smaller, a little more efficient. And I thought she did a really admirable job in a, in a nasty style matchup with Jessica Andrade. So if she continues to show anything like those skills, 
she's just going to have a field day, I think, with the more unfocused game of Ashley Yoder. She just doesn't really have a strategic edge in this fight. And I agree with Jordan. I don't think she's really a good enough wrestler. Uh, that size alone will allow her to drag Angela to the ground. So I like Angela Hill by a decision, maybe a late TKO. All right, they're the picks from the for the Tough 25 finale from Connor Rebush on Jordan Breen's page. With all but the exception of the close C.B. Dalloway at Herman fight, we turn now to Anthony Walker for your quick rundown of Friday night's prelims, please. All right, so I like to say uh, Tisha Torres. I, I like her to beat Juliana Lima. I, I think she's just too athletic, uh, despite the fact that she has some very clear offensive flaws. Uh, she kind of reminds me of a like a female version of Phil Davis with uh, some good kicks, some some good wrestling, but without that fundamental boxing, as Connor pointed out. Uh, but still, without that, she still got the great gas tank. She still has the option to leg kick. She still has the high volume combinations. Uh, and I think the only thing that really uh, disrupts the way she likes to operate is what Rose Namajunas did with the broken rhythm in her striking. And Lima is not that sophisticated of a, of a striker. So I don't see that happening. Um, I don't think that she's going to be able to grapple Torres. And I, that would be her only path to victory, in my opinion. So I like Torres to win another decision there. Uh, next up for Gray Maynard and, and Ishihara. I like Ishihara to win this, and I think he wins it in big highlight real fashion. Um, I mean, he's he starts so fast. He has really hard inside leg kicks. He's a very, very wild counterpuncher as well. And we, we've seen with Maynard in the past, uh, looking back at the Frankie Edgar fights in particular, he doesn't deal, deal too well with the chaos. So when a fight gets chaotic, which is where Ishihara is, is at his best, he doesn't he, he doesn't operate too well and he makes a lot of those mistakes. Um, and I think his chin is just a little bit too weak at this point to make some of those mistakes against somebody who hits as hard as Teruto. So I think um, think Teruto's going to win by first or second round knockout and his bitches will be very happy about this. So for next, I got Jessica. I uh, I did. I did laugh at that, by the way. My <laughs> mic was muted. <laughs> I, I thought you'd like that one. Yeah. Read <laughs> so, nothing into silence. Sometimes we're just muted. That's all. <laughs> Uh, so, so Jessica I taking on Aspen Ladd. Um, I like Aspen Ladd to win this. I think she has a whole lot of potential. She moves forward consistently. She has very good striking in her own right, despite the fact I being such a good boxer. Um, she's got a she's got a good jab as well. Uh, she's got a great left hook as well. Uh, I, I mean, of course, she's never fought a striker the caliber of Jessica I. However, we're talking about Jessica I, who always makes some sort of big tactical error in almost any fight. And when she's not making a tactical error, she just completely freezes. So when you couple those two things together, I, I don't really think that, that she's going to win this one. I think Ladd can, can get a nice springboard to a career with a good win over Jessica I. I like her by decision. Uh, next up for Ed Herman and C.B. Dalloway. This is one I kind of went back and forth with a lot. Uh, Ed Herman is glacially slow. He's been through the ringer. He's, you know, he has good fundamentals, but beyond that, it's it's not really not really a whole lot there. CB Dalloway is also a guy who can, despite some of his athletic advantages, he can make some pretty big mistakes himself. As we saw with the Nate Marquardt fight, I mean, uh, we've seen it with Tim Bosch as well. Like he can go in there and just make a big time error that costs him a fight. But still, I, I like him to win this one. I think the the main things that did him in um, in some of his more recent losses were explosion and speed, two things that Ed Herman does not possess at all. So I like Dalloway to win. I, I'm, I'm thinking a second round finish for him. So next up for James Christ and uh, and Tom Galact 
Galaccio, I'm going to screw that name up all day. Um, Kraus is the proven guy. Kraus belongs in the UFC. He went into the Ultimate Fighter on a win streak. I mean, this guy belongs there. And as Connor alluded to, tough is a flawed system. You can't expect to find out the best fighter when you put them under these artificial circumstances with the added mental stress of not being around their families, of taking away the outside world, you know, forcing them to, to work with coaches that they're not comfortable with. It, it takes a lot of the factors uh, out of a real person's career, out of the equation. And for that reason, I got to go get James Krause. He's back training where he wants to train, how he wants to train with his family. And I think that mental that mental edge will put him right back in the UFC exactly where he belongs. Uh, so I like him to get a finish in that. I'm thinking probably second round uh, with strikes. And next up for Angela Hill and Ashley Yoder. I'm going to pick Angela Hill to win this, and not just because she's from my home, PG County, Maryland, but because she's uh, she moves in constantly. She's even if she's on her back, she has a strong guard, and she she constantly is moving. Uh, her feints and angles are great, and quite frankly, she just doesn't lose to prospects. There's been not one person that you can just label as a prospect that's beaten her. Ashley Yoder, uh, while she's good and while she's scrappy, I don't think she has what it takes to to stifle Angela Hill's movement and get her to the ground, which is the best place for her to be in this fight. So I like Angela Hill to win that by decision. All right, great breakdowns panel for the Tough 25 finale prelims coming up Friday night on Fox Sports 1 and UFC Fight Pass. Six-fight main cards, let's dive into that. It opens up at 205 pounds as Jordan Johnson uh, faces off against Marcel Fortuna. Uh, Jordan Johnson now 7-0 and in his pro career, facing the 9-1 and Fortuna. Johnson out of San Diego, um, high-level wrestler was successful in his UFC debut, defeating Enrique da Silva via unanimous decision in January. And Marcel Fortuna, uh, out of Half Gracie Jiu-Jitsu and American Kickboxing Academy. Santa Catarina, Brazil native, is 31 years old, and he's coming off a victory in his UFC debut via first-round knockout over Anthony Hamilton back on February 4th. The Dennis Bermudez versus Korean Zombie Fight Night card came into the UFC on a five-fight win streak. His only pro loss to Jesse Taylor via unanimous decision back in 2012. So Fortuna and Johnson, UFC with some designs on uh, perhaps building Johnson as a prospect at a 205 pounds. He opens up the main card Friday. Jordan Breen, who do you like? I like my similarly named brethren. I'm not sure if he's named for a travel brochure to go to the country of Jordan like I was. Shouts to my mother. Uh, an incredibly bizarre way to name your child. Nonetheless, Jordan Johnson, Jack, you mentioned like the USC wanting to build him. I can't imagine he's the kind of guy the USC wants to build. Like, there is nothing flashy about this guy's game. You can laugh all you want about him being a generic bald white dude with a chin strap, but... This dude is as meat and potatoes of a mixed martial arts game as you get, but he's physically strong. He's a great wrestler. He's well coached. He's definitely blossomed at the MMA lab. I think this is a great matchup for him. Marcel Fortuna was able to get on people's radars because he decked Anthony Hamilton. But if you watch his fight on top with Corey Hendricks, holy smokes. He, I mean, you're talking full out. You'd be thinking the wrong person you were just talking about was Frankenstein because Marcel Fortuna just staggered out with his arms at Corey Hendricks while getting pasted repeatedly. And this is a fight where he is markedly, I think, the worst wrestler, the worst conditioned athlete. I don't know if Jordan Johnson's going to be able to get a finish here because he's just, he's not a super high work rate guy. He's not a big banger on the ground, but 
he's on you all day like a wet blanket. He's got a competent submission game. He's a guy that can set things up. He is not the kind of dynamo that the UFC is going to want to push. But ultimately, given how sickly the condition of up-and-comers at light heavyweight is, they may have no choice at some point in time because in this particular case, regardless of whether or not it goes to 15 or he's able to get a, a mercy kill stoppage, I think Jordan Johnson's going 8-0 against Marcel Fortuna. All right, so a pick for uh, Johnson to remain undefeated. Quick peek at the odds. Show him uh, around minus 220, 225. Fortuna out there at plus 205 as the underdog. Anthony Walker, who do you like in our main card opener on Friday? I, I like Jordan Johnson to win this by decision. I mean, as, as Jordan pointed out, I mean, he's he's just such a, an aggressive wrestler. Uh, I think that right there is going to do all that's necessary uh, to to get Fortuna against the cage or on the floor, uh, go chest to chest and, and stifle his game completely. I mean, despite the fact that Fortuna does have uh, a, a decorated past in, in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, uh, a wrestler, the, the caliber of Jordan Johnson, just his style of wrestling, the way he presses up against you. It really negates a lot of the hip motions and a lot of the, the, the space between the shoulders that you'll need to actually do something. Um, constant pressure is going to win this for Johnson, and I think it's going to be by decision. And Connor Rebush. Yeah, I, I'm pretty much in aligning with the rest of the panel here. Um, <clears throat> Marcel Fortuna, man, is just he's not a great fighter just to, to call a spade a spade. He he's a very decorated Brazilian jiu jitsu player, but. He's one of those guys who I wish I could come up. Maybe Jordan can. I'm almost certain Jordan can come up with some examples to support this. But oh, geez. he's 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 one of those guys who is like a, he's a phenomenal grappler and he comes into MMA and seems to have this mindset like that's the only trick up his sleeve. And so it kind of makes him a bad grappler in MMA. Like he'll go for crazy, risky submissions, not caring about position. He just doesn't seem to understand how the rest of his game has to fill out to make his you know, obviously standout grappling work. Well, MMA. to be to be timely to this week, uh, maybe maybe it's just because it's like fresh on my mind because it was written. Maybe not. But does remind me a bit of Antonio Braganetto, who Guillermo Cruz for MMA fighting just dug up after the last three years. Turned out he basically went into financial despair and had to dig himself out the old fashioned way, the Bruce Buffer way with poker. <laughs> the you can read that on MMA fighting right now but yeah like I think you know when you look at Antonio Braganetto and, and sort of like his Sengoku fights I mean this is a very decorated guy a great physical athlete a guy with tons of upside and you see the way he fights and it's like you, dude you're not Hoist Gracie you know there's other pieces of this now right you're aware of the year you seen a calendar yeah yeah there, there's other guys like that too like uh, Rowan Carnero has been like that at points in his career um, although obviously a little better as a striker um, who's the guy that Ben Saunders just fought and got knocked out by a uh, German fighter? Peter Sabata was Peter like Sabata. that in his first UFC run. Anyway, Fortuna just doesn't have a complete game and he obviously hits pretty hard. He, he knocked Anthony Hamilton out, but otherwise he's just kind of stiff and unnatural looking in most of his fights. And that is exactly the opposite of Jordan Johnson. His game is very well put together. It seems to suit him perfectly. He has an ironclad process and he sticks to it in every fight. And boy, did he beat 10 shades of shit out of my sweet boy, Frank Waston Jr. in that last fight. So if that's something he can do to somebody like Frank Waston, I think he's probably going to seriously have his way with poor Marcel Fortuna. All right. So three ballots for uh, Jordan Johnson to remain undefeated in the opening contest. You, you, almost, gave, you almost gave three ballots to me, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I'm a Jordan Breen. Yeah, 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 I know. Yeah, it's just there, there's only one Jordan here. Uh, close. I was close. 
180. Yeah, but how much does how much does Jordan Johnson know about the Crypt Keeper? Probably not That's that true. much. That's true. He knows he knows nothing of all 93 episodes of HBO's Tales from the Crypt. You're, nothing. <laughs> you're, hey Jordan, you're, <laughs> I, I think I think you're just trying to angle for that 50% discount. <laughs> It's, it's, I mean, dude, I, when I saw those placards go up after they had the fighter summit, I was just, I was just thinking about all of the custom jerseys I could buy. Do they still have the, since he's dropping to 145 and fighting Jeremy Stevens, do they still have the Giblert Melendez jersey? <laughs> <laughs> Can I still get Nora, kid Norafumi Magomedov or whatever the hell Russian name they combine with Kitty Yamamoto? Or my favorite fighter, Anderson Aldo. Anderson Aldo, one of the greatest. The greatest feather middle in the of all time. <laughs> Anderson Aldo, two of the goats of all time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> got the Northern Ireland outfit, and you've got the Ireland outfit. That's oh, right. my shit. How did I forget it with the Northern Ireland thing? That was maybe the worst one. Yeah, those are classics. But hey, as Reebok made very clear, um, nothing was ever printed with those errors. It was just generated on your computer screen. Rest no, not like when they did the opening press conference thing and misspelled the word flexibility on the back of a giant video screen. Okay. <laughs> the hits keep coming. Uh, <laughs> Reebok in full effect this weekend, no doubt about that. It's uh, Brad Tavares versus Elias Theodoro up next on Friday night. It's a middleweight fight. Uh, of course, Elias Theodoro, winner of uh, Tough Nations back in the day, now 29 years old, 13-1 and one in his pro career, uh, defeated Cesar Mutanch in February via unanimous decision, beat Sam Alvey prior to that in June, dropped a unanimous decision to Tiago Santos in his lone pro defeat. That was December 2015. He's also defeated Roger Narvaez, Bruno Santos, and Sheldon Westcott in the octagon. That Westcott victory clinched that season of the ultimate fighter for him back in April 2014. Brad Tavares, well-traveled in the cage, 14-4 and four now in his pro campaign, 29 years old. The Hawaiian training out of Las Vegas defeated Kyle Magalhaes via split decision in his last outing in September at UFC 203. That was coming off a first-round knockout loss to the streaking interim middleweight title challenger for this Saturday, Robert Whitaker, back in May 2015. has been fighting for the UFC since the Tough 11 finale. He was a cast member then back in 2010 where he beat Seth Pachinski and then Phil Baroni coming off the show. So, Elias Theodoro and Brad Tavares uh, at middleweight up next. Anthony Walker, get us started on this one. Who do you like? Uh, I like Brad Tavares to win this one. I, I think he's just all around the better fighter. I mean, he is. Um, he does have some some noticeable flaws. I mean, he does have the tendency to go into cruise control. He, he can fight down to his competition. I think that's kind of where I'm a little nervous on this pick. But, I mean, he's very good with his long-range combinations. Uh, his movement is also very efficient and very purposeful. And I think that's the main thing that's going to separate him from Theodore. Theodore is definitely a high-output fighter, but how much of that output is completely useless? When you look at the Fajera fight, I mean, he just threw kicks and punches all over the place. He landed very little of it. Um, and it's not going to serve him very well against somebody the caliber of Tavares if he fights to the caliber that, that he can, if he doesn't fight down to his competition. I, I have faith in, in Tavares to pull this one out. I think he's going to do it by decision, and I think he's going to look very good in the process. All right, a ballot there for Brad Tavares, uh, who, according to the odds at the moment, uh, let's see, is uh, not so much favorite. It looks like it's pick odds. At one point, I think Tavares was was the favorite. Uh, right now, he's a plus 100 underdog on one line, and for the most part, pick odds other than that. So a very close fight. The ballot there from Anthony Walker for Brad Tavares. Connor Rebush, what say you? Yeah, the point about Elias Theodoro's uh, empty volume is a very valid one. He, it, This is just a funky, funky fight. It's difficult to know what Brad Tavares is going to show up. It's also kind of difficult to know what 
Brad Tavares is really the best at. He's always been kind of sort of a middling fighter. He was once hailed as a bit of a dark horse in this division, but never really found the style to, you know, uh, push his game on his opponents. He's he's almost got a little bit of what Tisha Torres has down at women's strawweight. Uh, but Theodoro, man, just has such a weird, funky style. I think you really need to be overcautious around him to be affected by it. Thiago Santos was not overly cautious. He kept Theodoro, uh, Theodoro tied up in the clinches and beat him up to the body and just sort of manhandled him physically. Cesar Fajera and Sam Alvey both had a lot of trouble convincing themselves to lead. Um, I don't think Brad Tavares will have the same problem. He is a more technical, more experienced striker, got better triggers, better form. And I think he's a little bit of a harder hitter too, even if he's not a massive power puncher. And in a fight where I kind of expect the wrestling and grappling to be a bit of a wash, we have two strong guys who like to wrestle, but often get sort of stalled out in the attempt. Uh, I think it's basically going to be decided by some fairly close striking exchanges. And I just think the little technical edge that Tavares has, the when a moment comes and he realizes like, oh, Theodore is not going to knock me out like Tim Boach did. I can walk through this and hit him. That's going to be the moment when he starts to sort of uh, edge his way in this fight. So I like um, Tavares by decision. Two ballots for Brad Tavares. Is it unanimous Jordan Breen? It is not. I love both of these dudes on a personal level. The style matchup, uh, Connor's being generous when he said it's funky. We'll get to that in a second. But uh, <laughs> it's you know, ugly. Being, a, being a Toronto dweller now, uh, I've been around uh, and encountered Elias a lot, not just in an MMA context. And uh, Brad Tavares, ever the sweetie, always emailing to get his Hawaiian and Las Vegas training brethren's fight finders updated and, and all the jazz for many a year, many a moon. So uh, shouts to two of the, the, the most legitimate sweeties in the MMA game. That said, um, for me, the, the, uh, the Tiago Santos fight is informative about kind of Elias Theodoru's limits. Uh, I've expressed in the, in the past when we talked about him, I'm always curious about his ceiling because even though he's a big, versatile athlete and a guy with a ton of charisma, there's no getting around the fact he was just some rich kid who played soccer who saw MMA and thought it was cool and got into it. His family's loaded. His brother independently owns like a million dollar like shipping company or something like that. This is not a dude who's hard up for it or needs to do this in any way. He's a dude that loves doing it because he likes it, probably loves the attention. And so he can try to get a sponsorship from Pert Plus. Like I said, the attention. So these things are all legitimate worries, but I think stylistically, the Tiago Santos fight kind of exposes his limit. Like Connor mentioned, Tiago Santos wasn't scared or daunted by the weird, wacky, purposeless volume that Theodoro comes with. He hit him hard to the body in retaliation. He counterpunched him, which forced Theodoro to go, oh shit, I gotta go inside on this guy. I can't just throw weird kicks from distance. And when he went inside... He was far too lackadaisical, didn't have a real plan B other than just, I need to go to a safer distance. And, I mean, Moretta was ready for him. He just, just like, crushed him to the body repeatedly, shrugged him off, threw him, threw him around near the fence. I don't see Brad Tavares being that guy. I think Theodore can move him around. We've seen sometimes Theodore come in in poor condition. He didn't look that way on the scales this time around. And I think if there's a kind of guy where he's going to have success with that aimless, just throw shit against the wall and hope it sticks. It may be Tavares, a guy who I think is more technically disciplined, has more to offer in terms of true, precise uh, striking or counter-striking variety, but I think may get jammed up by a lot of what Theodoru does. Really, the only guy who's ever dealt with 
how, uh, however uh, uh, ineffectual it may seem at times, really the only guy to ever deal with Theodore's style is a guy with massive stopping power. You can think what you want for Tiago Santos and whether or not he's a top flight middleweight, but he is damn certainly a accurate and heavy, heavy hitter, especially to, to the head and body. And Theodore is a long guy. So I think when you see the kind of guy that gave him pause there, Brad Tavares isn't that kind of guy. I still think it's going to be competitive. I think there'll be long stretches of inactivity followed by rushes of those Theodoro strikes. But even if they get tied up along the fence and don't go anywhere, Theodoro has the very real chance of a takedown. And if they don't, that kind of aimless volume still might be enough. I think it's going 15 close on points, but I like Elias Theodoro to his hand and is pretty, pretty hair raised. All right, to a ballot for the Canadian, two for the Hawaiian. At 185 pounds, second fight on the main card uh, Friday night at the Tough 25 finale. Up next at light heavyweight, it'll be Jared Cannonier versus the debuting Nick Rorick, uh, who is making his debut as a replacement. Uh, Cannonier's uh, original opponent, Steve Bosset, had to pull out late uh, due to injury, and so it's Cannonier versus Rorick. Rorick is uh, 7-0 out of Orlando, 30 years old, and uh, he is coming off a First-round TKO victory, April of 2017, and the Combat Night organization has been fighting pro since 2013. Cannoneer, the Killer Gorilla, 33 years old, 9-2, and two, fighting out of Alaska. He's coming off a loss over 15 minutes to Glover Tashira at UFC 208 in February in Brooklyn. Prior to that, back-to-back UFC victories for Cannoneer, defeating Jan Kutalaba uh, at the Tough 24 finale via unanimous decision, and Cyril Asker via first-round knockout at the end of some heavy punches and elbows. That was April of 2016. He lost his UFC debut to Sean Jordan via first-round knockout at UFC 182. Cannoneer versus Rorick making his debut here on short notice. Conor Rebush, who do you like? Yeah, uh, it, it's tough to favor Nick Rorick in any sense here. Uh, no, no slight to the man, but he's sort of not athletic. He's not very powerful or fast. He'll try to strike. He'll try to wrestle. But in fights, he kind of looks like Ed Herman, minus all the time and experience that he's had to hone his skill set. And Ed Herman without time is like one of those little foam dinosaurs without water. You just don't get to enjoy the rewards. Jared Cannonier does not need any water. He's uh, very athletic. He's very powerful. He has significantly more boxing technique than Nick Rorick and the speed and acumen to use it. Uh, his only problem has been a uh, weakness to wrestling, but even so he has shown phenomenal defensive grappling skills, very difficult to shake him on the ground and very difficult to tire him out, which means he can keep just popping away with that sharp jab and that hard right hand for as long as he needs to. So I'm thinking Jared Cannonier by first round knockout. All right, strong pick for Cannoneer there, who is the favorite against the debuting Rorick Cannoneer out there uh, around minus 270. Rorick at plus 245. Rorick cutting down from a career at heavyweight, by the way, uh, to make his UFC debut at 205 on Friday. Jordan Breen? I like Nick Rorick to unfortunately get knocked out and maybe knocked out badly. There's a reason that people were hopeful and really even pushing the idea that Jared Cannoneer could beat Glover Teixeira, which I thought was positively insane. That said... Jared Cannonier has a place in the UFC. Nick Rorick still up for debate. He has faced positively miserable opposition. The closest thing resembling a real fighter he fought was earlier this year, barely beating Danny Babcock, who's an inflated middleweight whose prime was probably six or seven years ago. Uh, Connor broke down his game succinctly. He's correct in all aspects. I don't see how he could possibly throw any kind of strikes with Jared Cannonier without getting hurt. 
And if he just runs for a takedown the way he has in most of his fights, he's just going to run into an uppercut, a knee, or get stood up and then plastered with punches. Don't see how he pulls off the upset in this one, never mind the short notice. Based on style alone, even with full training camps, Jared Cannon here by first-round knockout. And Anthony Walker, is it unanimous here at 205? It absolutely is unanimous. Uh, Nick Rourke took this fight so he can have another shot in the UFC. Uh, that's that's pretty Bingo. much what this is. There, there's no other. There, there's no way uh, aside from the the improbability that he lands a lucky shot uh, that Janet that Jared Cannonier loses this fight. Um, he's much more athletic. He's he's actually beaten real opposition. I mean, the best record uh, of any of Rourke's opponents is nine and five. That is the absolute best opposition that he's fought. So. Yeah, this he's never is, faced this anyone not, else with a winning record. Yeah, this this is not a UFC caliber fighter uh, who's fighting a UFC caliber fighter, and I think that really says it all. All that needs to be said It's just a matter of how long Cannonier decides to let him stay awake. All right, up next at 155 pounds, Mark Yakesi, the uh, heavy hitting uh, Brit, takes on Drucker Close. Uh, Mark Yakesi now 24 years old, undefeated 12 and 0 in his pro campaign out of All Stars Training Center, South Yorkshire, England, and. Um, Tremendous uh, outing in his last fight in March, where he knocked out Timu Pakalin with a stinging right hook in just 30 seconds. Great showing for him after a unanimous decision win over Frankie Perez um, in December of last year and last October in his UFC debut, putting away Lukas Sevieski uh, via second-round knockout coming off of Bama, where he was decorated in all kinds of uh, highlight reel finishes. Really a lot of upside for uh, bone crusher Mark Casey, who's looking to build off that knockout win against Drucker Close uh, out of Michigan, uh, although born in Michigan, trains out of the MMA lab these days, 7-0-1 in his pro campaign, and he was successful against uh, Devin Powell, one of the uh, kids Dana White discovered in the uh, Looking for a Fight show in Maine. <laughs> that was over in a 15-minute decision. That was back on January 15th, the BJ Penn versus Yara Rodriguez card. So, Drucker Close getting a second go here against Mark Casey, looking to make it 13-0. Jordan Breen, does it happen? Also, how is no one nicknamed Drakkar Close, Drakkar Noir yet? Yeah, that has to happen. I mean, it's not even because he's like half black. I mean, if your name's Drakkar, <laughs> period, you could you could be the whitest dude on earth. I'm sorry. You, that's the, like the most, other than high karate, that's the second most well-known shitty men's cologne in history. <laughs> I'd actually like my, to see a white guy named Dracker. That'd be interesting. <laughs> my, uh, do, I mean, I, I assume there's probably plenty. I'll search the Fight Finder database and see how many Drakkars we have in a second. Okay. But I like Drakkar Close's game. He's very fun to watch. It was fun watching him come up through Tachi Palace fights and getting to hear the King of Fight Pass, TJ DeSantis, on the call. That said, I think his game lines up very poorly for what Mark Diacasey does. So while I applaud the fact that this is a great pairing of up-and-coming fighters, and both of them have skills that should make this pretty darn entertaining, I don't think this is one that will go too well for Drakkar Noir. His best skill at distance is leg kicking, but he uses it all to come forward. He gets in the phone booth, and it's all dirty boxing. His best punch is a short uppercut, and his best other strike is like chopping elbows over the top. I don't think he's just going to be able to catch March Casey over and over again and put him on the fence and get that kind of brawling and get that kind of brawling style going that he needs to employ. I don't think it goes that way. I think Casey catches him from distance and ultimately ends up knocking him out. If not, we'll get a fun fight out of it. Sorry about that. All right, so a knockout victory is the prediction for Casey, who is a favorite coming in, close out there at plus 235. Connor Rebush, who do you like here at lightweight? How about instead of going Drakkar Noir close, all right, he goes with an illusory nickname, okay? He goes for an illusion. He alludes to film Noir, yeah. and this is a serious suggestion. This would be a good nickname. Drakkar the Big Sleep close. Ooh. How about that? 
Mm. Pretty good, right? Right? Gives you a little <laughs> gives you a little tingle. He might uh, be going to big <laughs> sleep on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I think Jordan described his game perfectly. He is a clinch specialist. I kind of like that about Dracar Close. There's not many people who make it their business to just get in the phone booth. He's, uh, he's and- fighting close. Yes, he fights in close. There's not many people who make it their job to get into the phone booth as consistently as close does. And most of the ones who do are maniacs like Justin Gaethje. For an in-fighter, someone who specializes in that range, he's really technically clean and uh, and has a, a game that I hope will continue to blossom. Against Mark Jacasey, the chances are kind of slim of that happening. Uh, close is just a little too limited for the time being, though he is a solid athlete. Uh, of course, uh, for you know, until somebody teaches Mark Jacasey that he is mortal, everyone will have an opportunity to teach him that lesson. He fights like he cannot be hurt or killed. He's often put himself into very close fights uh, that don't necessarily need to be close because Jacasey just kind of pours every ounce of energy he has, whatever's sitting around in his system at any given moment, he just throws it right in the face of his opponent, whether it's a big power bomb, slam, takedown, or a huge right hand, or a wild flurry, or a nonstop scramble. He does nothing at less than 100%. Remarkably, he's a, such a phenomenal athlete that uh, nobody's been able to stop it. And I think Jakar Close is going to be in the same boat, but one of these days, either Mark Jacasey is going to keep run, running over people uh, without pause, or more likely, somebody is going to catch him and he is going to have to develop a bit more uh, discipline in the cage. I don't think this is the time for that, though. Two picks for DKC and is unanimous Anthony Walker. Yeah, it's, it's unanimous. I, I do love this matchup, though. I mean, this is this is a really cool style matchup. I, I mean, both of these guys start extremely fast and they just kind of get right at it. I love how how close likes to get in for those clinches. He he likes to use a cross face, which is something that you don't see a whole whole lot of. Uh, but this it's great how he can create a small bits of space that that he can strike. I, I like to call him a, a tactical opportunist. He sees something and he just goes for it, and there's and there's no real thought put behind it. He just attacks it. Um, however, I think Decazy is the guy who can who can stifle all of that simply because he's so much more insanely athletic than him. He has good defense. I mean, he's got really good slips and head movement uh, to counter shots. Uh, He also has those takedowns in his back pocket. At any point in time, if it gets a little too hairy on the feet, he can just take it down. And I don't think he'll have any problem doing that. Uh, That being said, I don't think that he's going to have to take it down. I think uh, I think Draker comes in close and he catches some sort of spin kick to the body and gets finished on the ground with, with GMP. All right, so three picks, though slightly different in terms of method, still strong victories predicted for the Brit, Mark Diakese, to remain undefeated Friday night over Drocker Close. Second from the top at the Tough 25 finale will be the final fight of the season. Of course, it was the redemption season, so they brought back all manner of champions and past cast members, and it comes down to Jesse Taylor uh, from all the way back in Season 7 and Diego Lima, who had won, I believe it was Season 17 or 18. Um, He had... uh, actually lost in the finale of 19, pardon me, uh, to Eddie Gordon, knocked out in just a minute 11, though certainly uh, bounced back a bit more handsomely than Gordon, who was also in the Redemption House and uh, failed to advance. Jesse Taylor, meanwhile, has never once lost in the Ultimate Fighter House after all those fights, uh, including the aforementioned third-round guillotine choke win over, um, uh, oh my god, over uh, James Krause, sorry, and uh, didn't really get much of a run after that first berth on Tough. Um, 
Of course, they made much out of the, the hijinks where he was about to make it to the finale. That season kicked out the limo uh, on a Vegas trip uh, that they let the guys go on after the season was over, got all drunk and embarrassed everybody. So really nice fit for the whole redemption theme is JT Money. He only was able to get one fight in the UFC after that run where he lost to C.V. Dalloway via Peruvian necktie back in July of 2008, then went all over the place as essentially a journeyman fighter, dream, um, all kinds of organizations, XCF. Uh, made a run through Strike Force, where he lost to Jay Haran and Luke Rockhold. He lost to Talish Latis in the MFC, Hector Lombard in Australia, all over the globe. Eventually, though, landing back uh, here for Tough 25. His last pro fight was a submission armbar loss to Mukhamed Brukhamov. Uh, that was on the ACB card in October of 2016. He beat Seth Paczynski prior to that. Has really slumped. We saw him in the uh, World Series cage where he lost to Dave Branch via Bravo choke. That was pretty much his last high-profile fight before the Tough House overall. He's 30-15 and 15 in his pro campaign. Still fighting out of California and 33 years old, Diego Lima. Came into the house also off a loss at Titan FC 42 where he lost to Jason Jackson via first-round TKO. Prior to that, he had defeated David Michaud and Antonio Tricoli. Uh, he had a run, of course, in the UFC, starting at the finale, losing to Eddie Gordon, uh, was able to defeat um, George Antonio Cesario de Oliveira, via unanimous decision, but lost to Tim Means and Zhang, Ling, and Zhang Lang Li uh, via first-round knockout. So he was cut from the promotion uh, after that May 2015 loss to Li. Lima now stands at 12-5 and five in his pro career out of ATT Atlanta with his brother Bellator champion, uh, and the 28-year-old looks to... F- make right on that uh, final loss against Eddie Gordon against Jesse Taylor, who never really got the chance, though he had earned it in the house to fight in a tough finale. And they're saying there's 250 grand on the line for some reason. It sounds like there's different um, stakes here than in prior seasons. Probably because they have to pay these guys a bit more to agree to do the show, uh, considering their tenure in the sport. But They got uh, paid for fights on the show as well, 10000 apiece. That's right, I think. that's right, that's right. Yep, another wrinkle to it. So, interesting. Uh, Anthony Walker, we're going to start with you. Who leaves with the tw- Tough 25 hardware and a bit of redemption here? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to give that one to Jesse Taylor. Um, I think he has – I mean, one thing that Diego Lima has shown is that he has – a penchant for finding a way to lose. Uh, his original UFC stint, UFC stint has shown that, and I don't. I think that's one of those things that fundamentally doesn't change about a fighter. He may have have gone through the ringer in this tournament. However, uh, as we said before, tough is not exactly the ideal uh, grounds to see who the best fighter is, and maybe he flourishes in this in this sort of format, uh, as he was, you know, fairly successful in his original stint on tough, but. This isn't exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about him going away at the same camp, uh, probably doing the same things that he's been doing. And while he might make some improvements, I don't I don't see it happening. And for that and that reason alone, I think Jesse Taylor's going to win. And, you know, by the way, most of his wins ha- have been uh, by submission. I don't see why that changes. Um, Diego Lima has proven to be um, someone that can be finished in the past. I think that continues. All right, uh, Taylor is the favorite. Lima out there at plus 160 uh, in the Tough 25 finale. Jordan Breen. I like Jesse Taylor. I mean, no one wanted to watch Tough 25. You saw the ratings. But if you got to do a redemption season, honestly, who better to win it than this guy? Because it's not like he's some sort of scumbag like Junie Browning. You know, this is this is the dude that just got piss-ass drunk once and kicked out a limo window very early in his career because he's a bit of a dope and sort of immature and yeah, ultimately, Jesse Taylor is just a, a high-level journeyman. But he's a good one. 
and he's more than earned another UFC bid, even if you know he, like, at best will be a win-two to lose one guy. And I think the Diego Lima match, the only reason this is so close in the lines is the fact that Diego Lima's bread and butter is that he's still a good grappler, and that's where Jesse Taylor fails. I mean, I mentioned earlier with the James Krause-Tom Galicchio fight, that Krauss took his back even while getting beat up and had a moment against him. But I don't think that Diego Lima is going to get there. Hell, given Diego Lima's, I think, clearly visibly displayed poor chin at this point, Taylor may even just deck him with a right hand running forward into a takedown and knock him out. Never mind the fact that if you look at, uh, really, I think his emergence post-tough where he got better is Jesse Taylor is a really good ground and pounder. If anything, part of the reason he gets into trouble and gets into submission still is that maybe he's Achilles heel, but he's a guy that gets after it on the floor. I won't, I won't go like to say if so far as to say relentless because he's the guy that fights in bursts, but he throws hard ass accurate punches and elbows. And if he starts landing some of the heat that he was able to land on people in the house on the ground on Diego Lima, I think he may knock him out just from like full guard or something like that. Even if he has to go the full 15, I like Jesse Taylor, but I think given, Lima's chin, even if JT Money isn't going to exploit him on the feet, he may well knock him out on the floor. All right, two ballots for Taylor. Is it unanimous, Connor Rebush? It is not. I'm going to go with Diego Lima here. Uh, the chin is obviously an issue, but I'm not sure how much bigger of an issue it is than uh, Jesse Taylor's record, which boasts, let's go ahead and count them, 14 losses by submission. It is doesn't really he have, hard. Doesn't he have 15 career losses too? I think every single one but one was a loss by submission. <laughs> yeah. So that oh, is JT like money. Chael, Chael Sonnen levels, uh, early Matt Brown levels of uh, risky behavior on the ground. Uh, Diego Lima, very solid grappler. I think he may have a window of opportunity there. He was, however, one of the other guys I saw that I think really blossomed on this season of The Ultimate Fighter. He's uh, seemed to mesh really well with uh, Dillashaw and the wonderful coaching staff that Dillashaw put together for that show, Dwayne Ludwig, um, Elliot Marshall, uh, Lister Bowling, Matt Brown, I think were the coaching, the coaches. And uh, Lima seemed to really kind of grow and get more comfortable with his striking, get a little more fluid. It almost makes you want to see him move out to elevation to train with those guys. Um, but I think he's still got a solid team at ATT and, Really, I just think Taylor's a little too limited. He does have some power, but really he wants to go out there and pile drive you off your feet. He wants to get a takedown, and he does it with so much gusto that he tends to tire himself out too. So I think this is sort of a fight where as long as Lima survives the first round, he uh, should have a pretty good chance of uh, you know picking up and, and at least taking the last two, if not finishing Jesse Taylor. And that it plays to his strengths as well because as we've seen throughout his career and on The Ultimate Fighter, once he gets out of that, like, that cold cock territory at the start of the first round, uh, he tends to get better and better with each passing minute. He really is a fighter who gets his reads and then sort of builds the victory off of the uh, information he gathers at the very start of the bout. So I like Diego Lima to get a decision or possibly a late submission over Jesse Taylor. All right, so a bit of dissension in who takes home the redemption on Friday night. Interesting to note, uh, Jesse Taylor actually ended up linking towards the tail end of his camp with the Elevation Fight team, uh, getting to know them as well in the Tough House and did his camp there. So uh, we'll see if that shows at all and any kind of different shade he might bring into his yeah. fights. Of course, uh, very, very wrestling and top control based uh, throughout the course of his career, proved effective again in getting him to the finale. Uh, two ballots for Taylor, one for Lima. Which brings us to our main event, five rounds uh, in the lightweight division. His former WSOF lightweight champ and really promotional standout Justin Gaethje makes his anticipated UFC debut. The 28-year-old out of Grudge Training Center is now 17-0 and in his pro campaign, with 14 of those 17 wins coming via knockout. Uh, you know his WSOF uh, outings. Um, 
He beat Jay-Z Cavalcante in his first WSOF fight. Uh, that was um, the second World Series of Fighting card in 2013. Brian Cobb, Dan Lozon, Richard Panchrock, Nick Newell. Um, that was an NBC fight in uh, Independence Day weekend of 2014. That was a pretty high-profile event for him. He beat Melvin Gillard, split decision. Those tremendous fights with Luis Palomino in 2015. Uh, put a lot of mileage and damage on Gagey, but... Uh, that's certainly his stock and trade is is continuing to stand through damage and has made all kinds of proclamations about how he's not going to follow Michael Johnson to the ground even if he does knock him down Friday. Um, he wants a stoppage even if it means it puts him in significant peril and even in risk of getting stopped himself. We'll see uh, how that plays out. Brian Foster uh, and Luis Firmino uh, most recently was the outings of Gagey. That was at WSOF 34 where he beat uh, Firmino on New Year's Eve of this past year uh, over... Um, it, it was doctor stoppage in a title fight, so it was in between the third and fourth rounds uh, that it was waved off. Gaethje declared the winner via TKO. Steps in undefeated against Michael Johnson, of course, perennial top 10 in the division for the UFC, 31 years old, 17 and 11 in his pro campaign, recently splitting off as many have from the Black Zillions camp, though still working with Henry Hooft and some of the other trainers there uh, to get ready for this fight. Lost to Habib Nurmagomedov very soundly at UFC 205 this past November in MSG. Uh, Nurmagomedov taking him down and controlling him for two rounds and then catching him with a Kimura in the third. That was a deflating loss for Johnson as he looked great against Dustin Poirier, putting him away at 135 for the first frame in the main event of a September 2016 fight night card. And it was big for him, too, as he bounced back off losses back-to-back to Nate Diaz, which was a tough one on Fox as Diaz really got in his head and shut his game down. And uh, Benil Dariush, split decision loss for Johnson back in 2015. He's been fighting for the UFC since uh, 2010, where he was a tough 12 cast member and lost to Jonathan Brookins in the finale, and certainly has been playing the I am the established UFC presence here. Justin Gagey, you've never fought anybody with UFC cred, and it's going to be a steep learning curve indeed. So, really nice main event to headline the Tough 25 finale to whet the appetite for uh, UFC 213, and uh, we turn back to Conor Rebush. Your pick, Michael Johnson and Justin Gagey. Well, it is a Fascinating matchup. I fear that it will be a rude awakening for Justin Gaethje, though I have defended him uh, a lot. People have talked about his crazy, reckless style and how it couldn't possibly work in the UFC. I don't think that's true. I think there are several very favorable matchups for him in the UFC's lightweight division. Uh, And I think two people talk about making Justin Gaethje a more technical fighter. But really, this fight is an interesting case of opposites because we have Michael Johnson, who... Uh, I think thinks very well when he's cool in a fight. He he picks his shots really intelligently. He he gathers data and then employs it as the fight goes on. Something he's good at doing. And then he gets into trouble when he gets emotional, stops thinking, and just sort of follows the fight wherever it may lead. That's why he lost to uh, to Nate Diaz. You could say it's why he lost to Khabib Nurmagomedov. A lot of his losses stem from that inability to keep out of an opponent's fight and an inability to keep himself, you know, as the thinking man's. Uh, fighter in that particular matchup and to contrast that with Justin Gaethje I think if you were to tell someone like Justin Gaethje he needs to think more and pick his shots more carefully and focus more on his defense you'd probably neuter him because uh, he has tremendous technical skill and flow and power when the fight is insane but uh, if anybody anybody who watched his fight with Luis Firmino will know that when he's stuck at distance, when he's not engaging in a brawl, because he is a brawler by stock and trade, then he's not really that great. Uh, he got tagged by a lot of stiff, clean jabs from Luis Firmino before ultimately getting the chance to stop him. 
uh, he may not survive the same sort of punches from somebody with the speed and power and athletic ability of Michael Johnson. But if Gaethje can survive the first round and continue pushing the pace, if he can get in Johnson's face a few times, hammer his legs with some of those vicious kicks, hopefully tie him up and hit him with some uppercuts and knees in the clinch, if he can get just a couple of those favorable exchanges, uh, he's already got Michael Johnson pissed at him because of the pre-fight trash talk. So he does have a window to drag Johnson into a brawl. And in a brawl, there are very few lightweights I would take to beat Justin Gaethje. So I'm going to go with Michael Johnson. I think he's going to knock Gaethje out in the first or second round. But uh, both men definitely have a shot for uh, a surprising finish here. Now up there for the established Octagon veteran in Johnson, who is the favorite over the debuting Justin Gaethje. Gaethje out there at plus 153 here for his UFC debut and a prediction for his first professional loss. Anthony Walker. Uh, I'd like Michael Johnson to win this. I mean, this is still a very... um, very interesting matchup. I mean, Justin Gaethje, as Connor pointed out, is quite the brawler. I mean, he this guy throws out so many strikes, and he's willing to take so many as well. I mean, it's almost like Justin Gaethje decides that he's going to go into uh, he's going to go into the fight knowing that this fight is going to take five years off of his life, and he just doesn't care. And it's like you have to you have to make it very clear with yourself if you're his opponent that that's a possibility, and you have to be okay with it too. Uh, that's a, a very interesting dynamic with someone like Michael Johnson because we've seen uh, mentally him get get stunned before, as we saw in the Nate Diaz fight, a fight that he controlled uh, very early on. And then the moment those uh, Stockton slaps and the taunting started, he just kind of fell apart. Uh, however, I think the difference here is that Gaethje doesn't have that same reach that Nate has. He doesn't have the same wrestling ability that Khabib has. He doesn't have those uh, stylistic and athletic tools that are going to be necessary to exploit Johnson in in that way. Uh, Johnson, his hands are so incredibly fast. Um, he's got great leg kicks. He he mixes up the shots. Uh, the only thing is, if if you ever hear Henry Hoof yelling, don't give up, it's probably a lost cause. I think aside from Henry Hoof yelling, don't give up, I think Johnson's going to win this one. Uh, the Luis Formino fight, for me, just kind of cemented things. Uh, because uh, Formino, uh, no disrespect to him, doesn't belong in the same sentence as Michael Johnson when it comes to caliber of fighters. And he gave Gaethje all that he could stand. Um, and yeah, Gaethje's, Gaethje's O's got to go. I think, uh, I think Michael Johnson pulls this off. I- I'm thinking a third round stoppage. Jordan Breen, is it unanimous for Friday night's main event? It's clean sweep for Mike the Menace Johnson. I think, it, it, you know, the, the line between winning and losing sometimes is so fine. And we may see that here because we may see Robert Whitaker, Derek Brunson style in stain shootout. We may see a Justin Gaethje lose Palomino style and stay in shootout and maybe the chips fall and whoever wins wins. But ultimately, uh, I think people would view this fight very differently if Michael Johnson didn't get just raw blind against Benil Dariush. Yeah, we saw the Nate Diaz fight. We saw how Nate sucked him into his game. He leg kicked the shitter to Diaz for a round. And clearly, he was following the game plan for just about everyone who's ever dealt with Nathan Diaz on the feet. And then Nate Diaz just stalked and Jedi mind tricked him into thinking he was a tough guy and beating his chest and just beat his ass and humiliated him. Yeah, he lost the beatdown of the year for SureDog.com to Habib Nurmagomedov, largely because of the amount of punishment he took. But Mostly because 
Habib Nurmagomedov just went full dick mode and started cutting a promo on him and telling him to quit while actively beating him up and yelling at Dana White outside the cage, telling him to bring on Connor, which is, you know, that's kind of a level of extravagance you can't plan on from too many even great guys in the lightweight division. If if he had that Darius win and people just reflected on Diaz Nurmagomedov and how good they are, I think people would feel differently. More than that, he won the opening round against Diaz. And who struck first against Nurmagomedov? Who had Joe Rogan screaming, Nurmagomedov's hurt? Johnson tagged him almost right off the bat and then just kind of gave up the ghost. Here, I think Gates G's style insulates him. If this is a fight from distance, as pointed out, I think historically, Buscape is a very underrated fighter, but he's underrated because people don't appreciate how skilled he is. That's because he's also a massive disappointment who never lived up to his potential. When you will go watch him in Pride Bushido, the, 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 the fight with Luis Azaredos, one of the best fights in Pride history. And yet this is where he turns out still the boxing lesson he gave him from distance, never mind the fact that Johnson will be more readily able to supplement that with leg kicks. That's a bad look. More than that, the hand speed, Connor and uh, Ant brought it up. Dude, Michael Johnson cannot throw a straight punch to save his life. Both of his hands come like slingshots. There is, he's not throwing full Liddell type arc, but none of his punches are straight. It never matters because his hands are so fast. And, and also because of the way he throws, he ends up with awkward hand placement. When you actually look at the, the two punches that he destroys Dustin Poirier with, it's not just that he gets Poirier when Poirier sticks the lazy left out there first. It's when his right comes like right by it. It's inside of Poirier's shoulders. Like, there's nothing to even remotely block the blow at all. If Gacy just comes in soaring at head first, like we saw in the baboon fight, he's going to get positively boxed up. By the nature of shock and awe tactics, by the nature of the kind of offense that Gacy brings, it is entirely possible that if he just runs on Michael Johnson's face and goes bananas, he could win, and he could win incredibly fast. And it could be one of the most brilliant UFC debuts we've ever seen. It could be up there with your Anderson Silva, Chris Lieben-type moments. But I don't think it lines up in his favor. He's facing a great southpaw wrestle boxer who can shut down a desperation takedown, who is a more consummate technician than he is, even if Johnson isn't much of a straight puncher. And Gacy doesn't have the kind of straight punching, counter-oriented, and volume techniques that Dariush was able to bring out to thwart Johnson, or at least convince the judges that fight was close, and that Diaz would suck him into. I think this is a good style matchup for Michael Johnson, and if Justin Gacy is able to prevail with the same power of divine win, kamikaze style that he's employed (laughs) for the rest of his career then hat tip to the young man. Do what brought you to the dance. Unfortunately, I think he's about to hit the dance floor in a major way. I like Michael the Menace Johnson. There it is. Can I, uh, can I offer a brief technical insight into something Jordan just said? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, fight fans may find this interesting. I have an explanation that I think works pretty perfectly for what's wrong with Michael Johnson's punching mechanics. Um, internal and external rotation of the hips and the feet has a lot to do with what punches you can naturally throw, like effortlessly and hard. And the people with really good straight punches tend to be a little more towards pigeon-toed, internally rotated with their hips and their knees. And people with good hooks and uppercuts, or good circular shots, tend to be externally rotated. 
And Johnson's got a style where he uses what should be a lot of straight punches, but he is super externally rotated. He's duck-footed as hell. And when you watch him in his stance, his feet point away from each other at an L, if not wider. And he's so also happens, a very, very long stepper as well. You know, yes. he's a dude. He's a dude that will throw one of those whipping punches so hard that his plant yeah. leg like fully comes off the ground. Yeah, but it accentuates it because when he throws that left hand, his left foot has trouble turning through and driving it straight with the hip. And so to compensate, he really leans into it. And that's why you you always see Johnson with these awkward, not quite straight punches and sort of falling out of his stance, trailing his leg behind him because he has to lean to get popped. But I was very proud when I pointed out that he's got a naturally a killer right hook uh, and a right uppercut. And that was the shot that he he used to beat Dustin Poirier. So his game is a little funky looking, but there are also aspects of it that make him like I think Michael Johnson probably has a lot of power in that right hook because of the way his body's put together. He is one of the best lead hand punchers, I think, in the game. Yeah. I have no idea if he's actually a lefty, like if he writes with his left hand or not. Also, yeah. can I quickly say, not to get us too off track here since <laughs> we have a pay-per-view card to break down, but uh, should he win, how exciting is it to think of all the mean things Kevin Lee and Michael Johnson could say to each other before a fight? Yeah, yeah, a lot to look forward to in that regard. Um, and I, 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 want, I want people who drag one another down to the depths of despairs and like the lack of humanity and exposing it in this sport. This is what we need. And, and at this <laughs> point, would be two, two top ten lightweights, all the better. Mm-hmm. Yep, a lot, lot of options at 155. Fertile ground these days. And all three panelists like Justin Gagey to taste professional defeat for the first time in his UFC debut against Michael Johnson on Friday night at T-Mobile Arena. That concludes the Friday night FS1 card, which allows us to slide right into UFC 213, which is Saturday night on pay-per-view, with preliminary fights on UFC Fight Pass at Fox Sports 1. The prelims look like this. At light heavyweight, a pair of UFC debuts as Trevin Giles steps in against James Bohovnik. Uh, Giles, an undefeated fighter uh, out of Texas against the 8-1 Bohovnik. Uh, at 145 pounds, Cody Stammen faces Terion Ware. Uh, Stammen 13-1, and one, uh, making his debut. 27 years old, where 31 years old, also making uh, his debut, um, former um, Bama Bantamweight champion on the USA side, training with Pedro Munoz and others. Rob Font headlines the fight pass prelims on Saturday night against Douglas Silva D'Andrade. D'Andrade, of course, coming off that great uh, spinning backfist knockout over Henry Briones. Font now 30 years old, coming off a first-round uh, TKO of Matt Schnell, his lone loss in the UFC to John Lineker. Uh, the Fox Sports 1 prelims kick off at 170 pounds as Jordan Meehan looks to right the ship after retiring and then coming back and losing an uninspired fight to Emil Meek in December via decision. Faces Bilal Muhammad, uh, who's now 2-2 two and two in the UFC. Um, Bruno, uh, Tiago Santos, pardon me, faces uh, Gerald Mearshart uh, at 185 pounds. Um, at 170 pounds, Chad Laprise faces Brian Camozzi. Laprise in for Alan Joban here. Bit of a late replacement. Camozzi, the younger brother of uh, Chris Camozzi, former RFA champ, lost his UFC debut to Randy Brown uh, in December. And uh, in the final prelim fight on Saturday, Travis Brown coming off the really vicious knockout loss uh, to Derek Lewis and the humiliating post-fight antics uh, faces the Ezekiel choke master, Lexi Olenek, uh, who's now 40 years old, 51-10-1 in his MMA career, uh, with 10 freaking Ezekiel chokes to his name, looking to do it again <laughs> against Travis Brown. So interesting fights here. We'll start with Jordan Breen, Saturday night, UFC 213 prelims, please. I like Trevin Giles to uh, win his UFC debut. I don't think it's necessarily going to be pretty. I mean, Boshnovic, he's a former football player. He's actually Ben Rothwell's gym manager for Rothwell MMA. But uh, imagine imagine a Ben Rothwell, but uh, less physically skilled. Ben Rothwell's a surprising athlete. Boshnovic is cut of the same cloth, but with 
uh, without that surprising athletic upside. He's big, but very mechanical, very plodding, and he's coming in on short notice. Trevin Giles is a terrible defensive fighter. But this guy, he is a survivor. He just keeps, he gets punched in the face. Guys get submission opportunities on him. But he just stays on him, stays on him, and finds ways to punch them more, land major ground and pound. He's a jack of all trades, master of none, and certainly lacks in the defense department. But I think all things considered, if he doesn't pound his way and open up a submission opportunity, he's going to win on points. The Cody Stamen Terry and Ware fight, I'm only given pause by the notice. If Cody Stamen was coming in with a full camp, I would definitely feel good about him beating Terry and Ware. He hasn't faced great opposition, but he steadily improved every time out. Very well-rounded, competent game. Got a jab, can box, works great, clinch knees, can wrestle. Terry and Ware... He's a good athlete. He can wrestle and he can certainly hang in there and survive. You know, the guys who beat him like your, you know, your, your Luke Sanders types, they're good fighters who belong in the UFC. But now that he's here, he's necessarily going to be facing other UFC fighters. The only thing that really uh, makes me worry is the short notice for Stamen. Otherwise, I think he's going to be able to thwart most of the wrestling game. And maybe even if he has some trouble early, tire wear out and then eventually take over jab combinations, knees, counter wrestling, the whole shebang. Maybe that same dynamic in fast forward with Rob Font and uh, Douglas Silva Dundraj. Rob Font, injuries have been you know his downfall. When he came on the scene, busted up George Roop. He looked like a million bucks, looked like Mark Delagrati may actually have like another great fighter on his hands. He's, you know, he can fight from range. He can fight inside. He's got a sneaky, good wrestling and submission game. This guy's got the tools and he's facing someone that's wanting to throw, willing to throw, but slower, awkward, robotic. As long as Andrade doesn't just like ding Font with something crazy out of nowhere. I think Rob Font can piece him up on the feet, finish him that way, can piece him up on the feet. And then if they get in the ground situation, Font's got a good headlock series. And he's also a guy that can just force you to your back and ground and pound you. I think Font's going to win base basically all of the rounds, but I think there's a very real shot that uh, he hurts Andrade or, or even just like, like puts it on him and wears him out over time and gets himself a stoppage. Uh, Jordan Meehan, I know he's only a slight underdog. I think that partly that's because Bilal Muhammad hasn't really performed to the best and not most of his ability in the UFC, but also people are remembering a guy from years past and Jordan Meehan may, <laughs> may not actually be an old man because it kills me. He's, he's two and a half years younger than me, almost. But he's an old man by fight standards. This guy's father, to say nothing of the exploits of Lee Meehan, basically forced, he's, he forced his teenage kid to be a pro fighter. You know, this kid's been training his entire life. And he's taken some nasty, nasty losses. Emil Meek put it on him. Tiago Alves hurt him badly. Think about how devastating the end of the Matt Brown fight, which happened over four years ago. Think about how gruesome that was you know you don't want to call someone old and washed up by the time they're 27 years old but jordan mean i think is really going to have to dig deep and pull it out of the bag to essentially compete with a guy that has a highly similar style to him i think mean's probably a little little better in the straight submission offense game but i don't know that he's got the wrestling to get muhammad down i think this stays as kind of a straight kickboxing match and unless Mian can really go for it and whip off something devastating to hurt muhammad we have seen his chin being able to capitalized on i think he gets stuck behind muhammad's jab stuck behind those nasty low kicks and it's just behind for most of the fight i like below muhammad on points tiago santos and gerald michard is close because tiago santos is not very good on the ground however the fight against jack marchman he did kind of show a more expanded game he was willing to ground and pound and like a lot of guys with the the physique the hand speed just the explosion 
that Tiago Morata has, he's able to do a, a serious bang up job on the floor, hurting people as well. Mirshart, like the guy fights within himself. He's probably a top 20 middleweight who will probably never be anything better than that, but he's well-rounded tough, great to suss you up from all, from all angles. And if he lands anything that surprises Santos, or he can actually get a clean takedown, a submission's a very real possibility, but we already talked with the tough 25 finale about what Tiago Santos was able to do a fighter like Elias Theodoru. I think if we're talking about Tiago Santos against Mirshard, even as close as the line is respecting the difference of caliber and submission grappler Santos too big and powerful from distance. I, I think one of the very best body attackers in all of mixed martial arts and one of the very hardest hitters, I think on a pound for pound level, I like Tiago Moretta to win and, and do it via stoppage. As far as Chad Laprise and Brian Camozzi, well, I'd rather see the other Camozzi brother in spite of the size difference. It may make it remotely competitive. I just don't see what Brian Camozzi does. His style is he's more kick heavy than Chad Laprise is. Laprise is an infinitely better boxer, throws far more. Uh, for me, the only question is, does Laprise put so much volume on Kamozi, or does he land a combo so good he's able to knock him out? I think in terms of actual stylistic matchups, th- this one is just like such a foregone conclusion. Um, Kamozi is just in tough against a guy that I really don't see what he's going to do against him or how he's going to have success from exchange to exchange, knowing what a vanilla kickboxing style he has and how much better schooled with the hands Chad Laprise is. I think he puts the jab out there, comes with combinations. Laprise is a good multiple range boxer. Uh, I like the Canadian all day there. Travis Brown and Alexia Linick. Well, I've seen many in Alexia Linick fight where I thought, nope, there's no way this old balding man is going to be able to hit another low percentage judo technique without a gi on. Then he does. Travis Brown should be able to, for as terrible as he looked against Fabrizio Verdum, for the way he blew it against Derek Lewis, for as bad as Cain Velasquez destroyed him a year ago, he has to be able to keep Alexia Linick on the outside. I know Linick is a big, burly bear of a man. He actually has some power when he comes throwing those overhands, trying to run you as hard as he can into the fence with a double leg. And make no, make no two bones about it. Like, if he puts Travis Brown on the ground, and, and you see him starting to cross face, sneaking that other hand under Travis Brown's head. Buckle up. We may be putting another one on the fight finder. But I still think the size disparity, the overall striking, the difference in striking quality. Travis Brown may have been embarrassed recently, not even just in Ronda Rousey related ways. But the guys who've embarrassed him for the most part are top 10 heavyweights, and he's just not as good as them. Alexia Linick, he's more than a one-trick pony. He is more physically fit. He hits harder than people give him credit for. He's not just, he's not Jason Von Flew. He is not heavyweight Jason Von Flew. But still, Travis Brown is much better than his recent record indicates. There's a reason he continues to orbit in the top 15 of the heavyweights in the world, despite uh, having the losses he has recently. They've come against the best of the best for the most part. And I don't think Alenik is quite that caliber, despite having one of the most bizarre, esoteric, and delightful finishing maneuvers in all the mixed martial arts. Give me Travis Brown and probably by knockout in the first seven to eight minutes of the fight. All right, there's the rundown of the UFC 213 prelims from one Jordan Breen. Quick peek at the odds puts Trevin Giles in the favorite corner in his UFC debut over James Behovnis, who's out there at plus 263. 
Cody Stammen favored over Terion Ware. Ware out there at plus 250. Rob Font, comfortable favorite over Douglas Silva D'Andrade, the Brazilian out there at plus 284. Jordan Meehan, an underdog uh, here in his second fight uh, upon returning from his hiatus at plus 130 to Bilal Mohamed. Uh, Tiago Santos favored over Jill Mearshart. T- uh, Santos around minus 140. Mearshart at plus 135. Laprise, very big favor of Ryan Camozzi, hovering around minus 700 in some odds. Uh, Camozzi at plus 545 is the biggest underdog um, of the prelims and almost of the entire night. We'll get to Daniel Emelianchuk uh, here quite soon. And uh, Alexi Olenek and Travis Brown sees Brown favorited over an Olenek who's out there at plus 193. Connor Rebush. You might be on mute, sir. Sorry about that. I had the same mute issue you had before. You got it. Oh, figured it out. It was okay in the end. Uh, Trevin Giles versus James Boknovich. Uh, Giles is kind of like a Mark Jacquesi type. He is a wild man. He's not particularly big for a light heavyweight, but boy, does he fight like he cannot possibly be killed. And while that will definitely get him into trouble someday and has in the past, like if you want to check out, you want to get salivating about these prelims you don't know much about, go check out uh, Trevin Giles' fight with Ike Villanueva, where they just knocked each other down about a dozen times each. Uh, but that doesn't shake him. Uh, his confidence isn't broken. And for a guy who relies so heavily on confidence, that is a, that's a good trait to have. Boknovich is just kind of a slow, uh, a determined grappler, but not a particularly great wrestler, not particularly athletic. I kind of expect Giles to beat him up pretty succinctly. Um, Boy, I hope it's not pronounced Cody Stammen, is it? I, I was led to believe it was Stamen. And you better believe we had a lot of fun about how that's kind of a plant's penis on today's <laughs> vivisection. I will give you – I'll give that to you. You may very well be right. We, I hope you're right. We, we went with Stamen. I think the nicknames we came up with were uh, Cody Flowercock Stamen, Cody Petal Dick Stamen, and Ooh. Cody Blossom Hog Stamen. Uh, those are all good options for him. If he wants to consider those, I will sell them at a nominal fee. Uh, Cody Stamen obviously has a lot of upside. Great athlete, hits very hard, seems to have a well-rounded game. Uh, he has a, a lot of things going for him. You'll have to take this analysis with a grain of salt because he happens to be fighting the type of fighter that I just uh, go nuts for, like the type of fighter that I find to be fascinating and, and tend to be a little forgiving to in my analysis. Terrian Ware is what I would call a young veteran. The guy has not been fighting that long professionally, and yet he has amassed, I think, 21 fights in five years. He looks, uh, as my colleague Zane Simon put it, he looks like a guy whose only training is just sparring, like a guy who just travels around to all of the half dozen gyms in whatever town he lives in and just hooks up with good boxers and amateur fighters and just spars with everyone. He's very, very comfortable in a fight. Uh, He's very, very difficult to beat on the feet. As a boxer, he's quite technical, and more importantly, he's determined. He throws volume and uh, and can take a shot and tends not to take them that cleanly, which is a a good skill to have as well. Uh, I would take Cody Stamen over him, but for the fact that I think Stamen's, even though he's almost had as many fights as where, his style is still more that of like a young athletic prospect. I think he's really used to his athleticism, his power, his strength, his speed, carrying him through a fight. And I've seen a lot of instances from him where he'll kind of coast, kind of take his foot off the gas or do what I often call, you know, running out of ideas, which I think happens to a lot of inexperienced fighters. It doesn't happen to a guy like Ware. So I actually think that while Stamen will have a big start, 
Uh, I think that ultimately Ware is going to be able to threaten off his back and get back to his feet enough that he can turn this into a striking match. And his record is a little deceiving, but no one has really ever beaten Terry and Ware on the feet. He's he's just relentless. He's very difficult to outstrike. So I'm going to go with Terry and Ware by a decision or, or a late TKO. Uh, Rob Font over Douglas De Silva. I have to disagree a little bit with Jordan Breen's assessment. I think he gave uh, didn't give Douglas De Silva quite enough love. He is an interesting fighter to be sure. His style is certainly weird, but I don't I wouldn't really call him like slow or sluggish. And I certainly don't think he's a bad fighter, though. Of course, Jordan didn't say that exactly. Um, the thing with De Silva, rather with Douglas Silva de Andrade, uh, his nickname is De Silva, right? I'm not just being a xenophobe. Uh, I'm pretty sure I'm right on that. Um, Douglas De Silva, he has like uh, some Azuma Nelson to him where he, he's got this really stiff style. Like Jordan, I think used the word rigid and stiff. Those are very accurate descriptors for how he strikes, but it kind of makes it difficult to fight him because he's not like stiff, like Ed Herman where he can't move. He, he's stiff in this kind of hyper athletic way. He's just this little ball of muscle who doesn't seem to move with a rhythm because of all that tension. And so it makes it really hard to read sometimes when he does explode, even if his shot selection is, you know, he's got a pretty limited array of tools he likes to use. He can really catch people off guard. And that's especially true when he's punching on the counter. Uh, he had a lot of success in that most recent fight with Henry Briones, really beating him up with counter punches, taking a few licks and, and not breaking down, not gassing as you might expect, expect a guy with his style and his build to do. And, you know, knocking out Henry Brown is that's something that uh, Cody Garbrandt couldn't do. So we know that uh, De Silva is dangerous. I am going to favor Rob Font in this fight because he also has a ton of power. He's going to have a really uh, considerable size advantage in height and reach over De Silva. But more importantly, he's just got a more sort of well-rounded, integrated game. Everything kind of flows into everything else. He'll mix in a takedown. He'll attack the back. He'll throw punches in the pocket. I think he'll probably get tagged hard a few times by De Silva. But uh, just by mixing things up, I think he'll be able to find a path to, to uh, victory. I agree with Jordan's assessment of Jordan Mean. I, uh, Mean has just broken down, I think, at this point. he's Yeah, he's a young guy, but he had a crazy number of fights. And, and particularly recently, a lot of them have been really, really hard on his body. He just doesn't look like a guy who has it anymore. And considering all the hiatuses he keeps taking, it doesn't really seem like he has the passion for it either. You get this sad sense that maybe Jordan Mean just doesn't really know what else to do. Uh, the Jens Pulver sort of conundrum. And I think Bilal Muhammad just kind of has a similar style uh, with one wrinkle that I think will really help him, uh, a commitment to low kicks. And Mian has never been very good at defending kicks. Like a lot of good dynamic kickboxers, uh, he is vulnerable to kicks himself. It hurts his movement-based style. He doesn't like to check them because he doesn't like to stand around. And you've got to stop moving if you want to check kicks. So I think that Muhammad's going to be able to pour on those low kicks, wear Mian down, and just kind of ultimately beat him up, possibly on the ground even. Um, Muhammad's got a pretty underrated wrestling game, and uh, that aspect of his game looked pretty well-developed against Randy Brown. I'm also going to take Tiago Santos over Gerald Mearshart. I have a ton of respect for Mearshart. Um, I think he's a very competent, well-rounded fighter, but he is very slow. He is not much of an athlete. You see instances in a lot of his fights against lesser athletes or people on his level athletically where he will just sort of float in a very perilous position after landing a shot or will keep his chin uncovered or something. He just kind of expects people to be working at his pace. And while that means it's difficult to rattle him, he's very comfortable just sort of chugging through a fight. 
Tiago Santos is not going to give him those kind of rests. He is a type of fighter like a Tyron Woodley who can really, really surprise you with the speed and the power in his strikes, the kicks in particular, but the boxing is coming along. And as Jordan pointed out, the ground game seems to be developing as well as is maybe the heart of Tiago Santos. I'm not sure if Santos a few years ago would have gotten back up when Jack Marshman dropped him. Uh, but I was very impressed with the way he recomposed himself, reset and used some of the best footwork I've seen from him to set up the knockout kick. So I have faith that Tiago Santos is just going to be a little too fast for Gerald Mearshart on the feet and a little too difficult to track down to force him to fight a ground fight if he doesn't want to. Chad Lepre's speed is also going to be the big advantage for him against Brian Camozzi. I, I don't think Brian Camozzi is a terrible fighter. I think he's very scrappy. He's uh, ferocious. He's pretty well-rounded and is a bona fide finisher. And he's going to have a pretty substantial size advantage. I think he's going to be five inches taller with a five and a half extra inches of wingspan over Chad Lepre. So that is not something that can be uh, just sort of dismissed out of hand. But he is not much of an athlete. And where Chad LaPreeze is not super strong or super powerful, he gets tired maybe a little too easily sometimes, he is very fast and very technical. I have described him several times as sort of the ideal for Ross as a hobby kickboxer with his footwork, his counterpunching, and the variety of his strikes. I was a little concerned for him researching this fight, knowing that sometimes he slows down, sometimes takes his foot off the gas, that maybe Brian Camozzi's height would give him problems. Then I looked back through Chad Laprise's ledger, remembered that he fought Brian Barbarena, which is a win that looks a lot better in retrospect. We now have a better idea of how good Brian Barbarena really is. And uh, I realized that his weapon of choice against such a big, tall welterweight was the head kick. So I, I'm not particularly worried that Brian Camozzi's height alone is going to be enough to throw off the technical striking of Chad Laprise. I'm expecting a first round TKO. And then Travis Brown just cannot catch a break in his career. Um, I think he caught a few good breaks to get himself into the highly ranked position he held a few years ago. I think we're now seeing more of what should be typical from Travis Brown against the best of the best in the heavyweight division. But of course, we're also seeing the effects of what seems to be some really irresponsible and lackadaisical coaching from Edmund Tverdian. People in the MMA world don't need any reminding about the many exploits of Eddie Tverdian. He doesn't seem to have helped Travis Brown very much, but at the very least, he gave Travis Brown free reign to go back to something uh, approaching his old style in that fight with Derek Lewis. Brown was kicking. He was using his footwork, using his frame, things he hadn't been doing for a few years at that point. If he can do that against Alexi Olenek, then I think he's pretty much a lock to win. Olenek is powerful, as Jordan said. He's a better technical striker than you think. He's got the crazy diverse submission skill set on the ground, but he has had a ton of fights He's 40 years old, and he hasn't looked in great shape for his last couple fights from my perspective. I think he's he's either having trouble getting himself into fight shape uh, with his camps these days, or he's just slowing down with age. I think Brown should be able to pretty easily keep him at bay. And if Olenek does really pursue the takedown, we may in fact see the return of the elbows that Travis Brown uses to defend shots from lesser wrestlers. So I like Travis Brown by a second round TKO. They're the UFC 213 Prelympics for Conor Rebush in concert with Jordan Breen on all but the uh, second fight, Stammen versus Ware. Conor going with Ware, Jordan with Stammen. Anthony Walker, uh, your rapid-fire rundown of the prelims for Saturday night. Uh, I like Trevin Giles to beat James Bognovic. Uh 
Giles is a very, very good athlete. I mean, he's very reckless. Uh, the fight that that Connor uh, referenced earlier against uh, Ike Villanova was a great fight, but it showed how hittable he is. Um, he does have a good gas tank. He, um, but he gives up his back very easily. It is part of his his reckless nature. He gives up his back. He he exposes his neck a lot. Uh, and maybe he does have good submission defense. But I think that's a very dangerous game to play against somebody uh, in Boknovic who has all of his wins by submission, though they were against weaker opposition. Uh, but still, I think Trevin Giles did show his heart. He showed that he can fight through adversity. And I think if he gets in a bad spot, he'll be able to get out of it and get himself a decision win. Um, Cody Stamane, uh, Stamen versus Terry and Ware. Um, before I go into my pick, uh, I, I raise you from the, the, bo- the, the blossom hog. Was that, was that the name Connor? The blossom hog. Yes. Blossom Cody, hog. The blossom hog Stamen. <laughs> How, how about the tallywhacker tulip? How about that? <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I like Terry and Ware to win this fight, despite how cool the tallywhacker tulip nickname may be to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, he's he's a guy who uses great footwork and distance. He he's also very patient. Uh, and that's something that that Cody is is lacking. I think he he's such a fast starter, and he he tries to keep a high pace and keep the aggression up. But but Terrian Ware can deal with some of that aggression, can dish out a little little bit of it. But he knows when to be patient. He knows when to slow it down. Uh, and is also also defensively, he's very sharp. His head movement is very good. Um, I, and he's he's beaten high level opposition. He's got two wins over uh, Jared Papazian, although one of those is in boxing. But still, he he's fought against higher opposition. I think he proves it. Uh, against uh, the Tallywacker Tulip that night. Uh, Douglas Andrade versus Rob Font. I like Rob Font to win this one. Um, and I'm not going to be as hard on Andrade as as Jordan may have been. I think he's a powerful striker. Yes, his arsenal may be a little limited. He doesn't show a lot of variety in his strikes. Uh, but he he works with what he has. He's a very powerful guy. He's he's very muscular. And, and while he may not be as mobile, he uses it to to stay content with his counter shots. However, I think Rob Funt's mobility, um, the fact that he isn't as good backpedaling, which will play into uh, Andrade's need to counter. I think they can play into to each other very well in Rob Font's favor if he's very careful with his aggression. If he kind of kind of steps forward and then steps back on a half beat and, and make sure that he can stay just out of Andrade's range while giving him something. And with those hard punches, somebody's going to sleep. I think Andrade. I think he drops in the in the second round, probably late second stop, second round stoppage. Jordan Mean against Bilal Muhammad. I like Bilal Muhammad to win this one. Uh, Bilal Muhammad is somebody who I, you know, maybe I'm a little biased here. I, I really enjoy watching Bilal Muhammad. He's he is the classic knucklehead. This guy loves to loves to scrap. He loves to get it in. But I think in the, the Danny Brown fight, he showed a lot of improvement. He showed improved wrestling. Um, he's throwing more straight punches. He's throwing more leg kicks. His gas tank is good. He is still very hittable. But we're also talking about Jordan Mean, who is in fight years, has to be in his 60s. I mean, the guy has been through so many wars. He retired for a reason. And for him to come back and look so listless in his uh, performance against uh, Emil Weber-Meek, I-, I think it shows something. I, I think it shows that Jordan Mean isn't the same guy that we saw in Strike Force. And that's understandable considering the amount of wars that he's been in. Uh, so I like Bilal Muhammad to win probably a decision. I wouldn't be surprised if it was a late stoppage either, but I'll stick with decision on that one. Uh, Jarek Mershak versus uh, Tiago Santos. 
Santos. I like Santos to win this one, and I think he I think he gets a decision here. Um, Merchak is very very good in his submissions. He also has a wealth of experience. Um, he's and he can find a submission in really tight space. I just don't think Santos is going to give him that space. I think he's going to work his kickboxing. I think he stays to the outside. Um, I, I mean, he is susceptible to a takedown if he if he were to plant his feet too far or if he was forced to back up. But I don't see Gerald doing that to him. I, I think Tiago Santos is going to be able to, um, to to keep the the pressure on him in a controlled manner, avoid the takedown attempts uh, if they come. I mean, Gerald is not one to to go for any you know pure wrestling takedowns that that I can remember. Uh, but I think Santos is going to get a decision there. Uh, Brian Camozzi taking on Chad Lapree. I want to favor Chad Lapree, and simply because the superior athleticism. Uh, when you take the athleticism out of the factor, Camozzi is the taller guy with with like a seven inch reach advantage. That right there is is something delightful for a striker to have a seven inch reach advantage, especially one who favors a tie clinch. But Chad Lapree is is really fast. He's he's insanely fast, especially com- compared to Camozzi, who, just like his brother, is not the, the best of natural athletes. So I think that right there alone is going to do him in. Uh, Chad Lepre, I like him to finish that one in the first round. Um, Alexi Olenek taking on Travis Brown. Um, this this one kind of kind of confuses me a bit. I, I'd like to say Travis Brown is going to win this, and that that will be officially my pick. I do see ways that he can lose this, and and that though that way is namely Edmund Tarverdian. Now I know he is not full time with Edmund anymore, but how much is that left over? I mean, if he gets back to to the footwork, uh, to using his full reach, uh, to using his superior athleticism and keeping things to the outside, I think uh, Olenek doesn't stand a chance. I mean, because if he can't get the takedown. I don't think he has any answer for that. Uh, pretty much all of his his wins, I mean, he goes at a guy and just dives at him and tries to get him down as fast as possible. If he if, if Travis Brown can avoid that, then I think he's golden. And even if he were to clinch up with Travis Brown, keep in mind that Travis Brown was the same gentleman who elbowed uh, Gabriel Gonzaga and Josh Barnett into the apocalypse uh, in the clinch uh, and, and, and failed takedown attempts. So keep that in mind as well. Travis Brown wins this. I, I give it by decision. All right. So there you go. Um, the picks from Anthony Walker. Closing out our UFC 213 prelim breakdown, which brings us now to the main card, 10 o'clock Eastern start time on pay-per-view. It opens with former UFC lightweight champ Anthony Showtime Pettis at 155 pounds, taking on Jim Miller. Miller, the veteran at 28-9-1 and and in his pro campaign, 33 years old, coming off the loss to Dustin Poirier via majority decision at UFC 208, snapping a three-fight win streak that Miller was on late in his career. Uh, Pettis, 30 years old, 19-6. and He's coming off the loss to Max Holloway for the interim featherweight crown at UFC 206. This past December uh, in Toronto, the finish coming at 4.50 of the third frame as Holloway caught up to him with a body kick and punches. Uh, prior to that, uh, Pettis had defeated Dobronx Charles Oliveira with a guillotine at 145, and uh, that was after dropping down a weight class after losing three straight at 155 to Edson Barboza, Eddie Alvarez, and Rafael Dos Anjos, Dos Anjos uh, to lose his title at UFC 185 in March of 2015. Jordan Breen get us started for our pay-per-view portion on Saturday night. It's Showtime versus Jim Miller. 
in a world not that long ago, this would have seemed like a complete no-brainer if we went back two and a half years. But, you know, how, how the mighty have fallen. And Jim Miller, a guy who kind of looked left for dead not that long ago, really having a, a sudden resurgence after having a bout with Lyme disease, which is a hotly disputed disease that, or, or, or a sickness that it can impact you in a whole host of ways. And since basically looking miserable, what, uh, 16 months ago, 17 months ago against Diego Sanchez, yeah, uh, he, went, he went one and four between 2014 and 2016. Yeah. And like just uh, didn't really deserve to beat Danny Castillo either. Nonetheless, uh, has, has looked resurgent since then still. I don't think it lines up well for him in the feet. Miller is, you know, he, he's always had surprising powers. A southpaw has been able to crack some guys. He's got a much more fluid, dynamic submission game than people give him credit for. But he's not the guy that's, he's not Max Holloway. He's not Rafael Dos Anjos. He's not the guy that's going to break Anthony Pettis down in that way. I think in the Oliveira fight, uh, a fight where Pettis safely and competently made weight, you saw what this guy can still do against Yes, a flaky guy, but an incredibly talented and offensively gifted fighter. And Charles Oliveira, truly one of the most dynamic submission specialists we have in the entire sport. So I don't think that Pettis is so far gone that he can't take out an aged Jim Miller, a guy who's going to be left chasing him, that Pettis can give multiple looks from the outside to and try to land those sniping strikes. You know that Pettis isn't going to have high volume here, but he can hit he can he can defensively jab and kick and keep Miller away and win a fairly boring affair if he really puts some gusto in it he can hit him with hard clean straight shots employ the kind of leg kicking body kicking then to the head kicking that we've seen from him in the past and he also has the ability i think to hit and hurt Miller and finish him off by submission and transition i like Anthony Pettis probably via stoppage in the first i don't know uh, late, late second, early third kind of deal, but it's Pettis. He's a sniper. You never know how fast you just may end up in the crosshairs. I don't think we're ever going to see him return to pound for pound prominence, but even with the uh, Miller looking resurgent and all the better with, with the tragedy and strife that him and his brother have had in their family in terms of illness, sickness and, and things like that, all the better that he's resurgent. But I think Anthony Pettis is the wrong one. I like pretty Tony and I like him by stoppage who is the favorite against Miller on Saturday. Miller out there at plus 211 as the underdog for the UFC 213 pay-per-view opener on Saturday night from T-Mobile Arena. Anthony Walker, who do you like here? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I had it on mute too. Mm-hmm. Um, I like I like Anthony Pettis to win this one. Uh, I mean, despite the fact that we're not talking about the Anthony Pettis uh, you know, jumping off the cage against Ben Henderson or, you know, essentially murdering Joe Lozon. We're not talking about that guy anymore, but we're still talking about a, a supremely gifted athlete with a, a very diverse striking arsenal who who's shown an ability to snipe people like there's no tomorrow. And we're talking about and we're also not talking about the same Jim Miller, you know, that that had that great run uh, before he was stopped shy of a title shot. We're talking about a guy who, while he might have a, a recent resurgence, he has a recent resurgence against, you know, opposition that isn't really, you know, too spectacular. Uh, with that being said, Pettis has been losing to the best, the absolute best of the best. Uh, and guys like Dos Anjos and guys like Holloway. And, and I think that is going to make a huge difference here. Uh, Pettis has the ability to keep things on the outside, to uh, avoid a lot of the offense that, that Miller can present. And, and I think we have to think back to Miller's fight against Donald Cerrone, 
where you saw a guy with that that level of kicking ability uh, and and able to throw front side leg kicks uh, front side kicks without any sort of switch and any sort of setup. You know the way he was caught dead to rights by Cerrone several times over. I, I think Pettis can do the exact same thing. I like him to finish this one late first round. All right, strong picks for Pettis. Connor Rebush is it unanimous for Showtime? Well. Not quite. I'm actually going to take a flyer on Jim Miller here. Uh, I agree with the other guys. I th- I'm glad to hear them say, you know, talk about Jim Miller's resurgence. I think he's better than ever, to be quite honest. Uh, the game is a little different than when he first started. He's having more trouble getting those submissions, but his striking, his wrestling, those things, I think, continue to improve. And uh, he's really a testament to how far just hard work and lots of valuable experience can really go for someone who has never had the kind of athletic talent of an Anthony Pettis. A lot of Anthony's game is based on you giving him respect. I think the, the the real thing that ended his time at the top was not that Hafa dos Anjos showed necessarily the game plan to beat him, because, of course, everyone who's beaten him since has beaten him in very different ways to what uh, RDA did. It was that RDA just didn't respect Anthony Pettis in the cage. He didn't fear him. He didn't think, oh, I'm going to run into this. Oh, I'm going to run into that. When Anthony Pettis kicked him, Dosanjos kicked him right back. When Pettis backed himself into the cage, Dosanjos kept him there. And when Pettis started panicking and throwing combinations uh, without his feet being set, with his feet square, out of position, Dosanjos capitalized. I think this may be one of those great late career veteran performances from Jim Miller because what he did against Dustin Poirier really, really impressed me. He stayed really tight in the pocket. He stayed composed. He landed counter shots. He refused to be hurt too badly and protected himself when he was stunned. And he nearly took Dustin Poirier's leg off. And if speaking of people's legs getting taken off, if we're giving praise to Anthony Pettis for that recent win over Charles Oliveira, remember that Jim Miller uh, just about tore uh, Oliveira's leg off when he was still a lightweight a few years ago. I think the combination of wrestling and combination punching, the durability and the tenacity of Jim Miller will allow him to follow the basic tenets of a game plan, which which basically just consists of uh, don't give Anthony Pettis too much time or too much room to breathe. Stay on him and don't fear him. And I don't think Jim Miller fears anybody. So I like Jim Miller to win this fight. Hey, now pick for Jim Miller to upset uh, Anthony Pettis as the plus uh, 204 underdog to get us started at UFC uh, 213 on Saturday. Pardon me, plus 211 underdog. Fascinating and will be... Uh, a depressing return to 155 for Pettis if it does play out that way. Uh, up next at heavyweight, Fabricio Verdum and Alistair Overeem lock it up again for the third time. Uh, they first met back in Pride in 2006 as part of the uh, uh, Total Elimination Absolute Tournament. Um, Akimura for Verdum picked up the win at 243 of the second round back in the Pride days. They then uh, rematched in Strike Force in a, in a pretty terrible plotting affair over 15 minutes, Overeem getting his hand raised uh, back in June 2011. They run it back again. Since then, Verdum has kind of locked up one of the most uh, impressive resumes in the history of heavyweight MMA. After losing to Overeem, as a matter of fact, beat Roy Nelson, Mike Rousseau, uh, Big Nog, Travis Brown, Mark Hunt, and Cain Velasquez to become UFC heavyweight champion. That, of course, at UFC 188 in Mexico City. Lost the belt uh, in his first outing as champ against Stipe Miocic. That was back at UFC 198 uh, last May via first-round knockout. 
and then bounced back did for Doom to defeat Travis Brown, unanimous decision at UFC 203. Alistair Overeem, now 37 years old, 42, 15, and 1 in his long MMA campaign. Still working out of Jackson Winklejohn now in Albuquerque. Coming off the vicious knockout over Mark Hunt at UFC 209 in March. A big knee uh, caught the New Zealander flush and put him down in memorable fashion for the iron-chinned Mark Hunt. And that was also a bounce back for Overeem from a loss to current heavyweight champ Stipe Miocic, who put away Overeem in the main event of UFC 203 last September. First round knockout. Overeem had put together four consecutive wins in the UFC's heavyweight division prior to that title shot, defeating Andre Arlovsky, Junior Dos Santos, Roy Nelson, and Stefan Struve. So two of the UFC's uh, more veteran and uh, recently accomplished heavyweights facing off here at the top of the division on the main card at UFC 213. Anthony Walker, who gets their hand raised in their third meeting. Uh, you know what? I'm, this one is, is such, such a toss-up for me, but I, I want to go with Alistair Overeem um, because Overeem, despite the depleted chin, he's found ways to work around it, and he's been very, very efficient in that. I mean, if when, when he was announced to fight Mark Hunt, I, I thought it was a foregone conclusion that Mark Hunt was going to tap his chin and put him to sleep. Um, when he fought... Um, when when he when he fought some some of those guys that he fought, like it's it's it should be clear that Overeem gets tapped on the chin and he falls asleep. However, he's been able to work around it so efficiently that I don't think we can we can say that for certain anymore. Uh, and we've seen Verdum have some some very strange mental lapses. I mean, just it wasn't that long ago that he was he was teeping Edmund Tverdian because of some trash talk in the cage, um, you know, and having having a, a overall very strange bout against Travis Brown, despite him being victorious. And then the way he charged that Sipe Miocic with his chin first, uh, I mean, when when for doom gets thrown off, he does some very bizarre things. And I think all of those bizarre things that he can do will play into Overeem's hands. Of course, there's that possibility that something grazes his chin and he goes to sleep. But Overeem has been very, very careful uh, about how he goes about his fights uh, with the Stipe Miocic fight being the, the lone exception. And even that, he still played it cautious to start with. Uh, so I think, and I even think if he were to to try to employ his wrestling game uh, like he's done with a few guys in the past by, by surprise, I think even then he might feel pretty comfortable. I mean, uh, Verdum... Verdum has that submission win over him way back when, uh, but Overeem only has that one submission loss, and he's been in some tough spots and been able to fight his way out of it. Uh, he's no slouch on the ground himself. Uh, so with that being said, I think Overeem is going to win a decision, and it's probably not going to be the most aesthetically pleasing one. The pick there for Overeem to triumph in the rubber match with Fabricio Verdum. Verdum is the underdog at plus 113. Connor Rebush. These guys have such an, a bizarre history together. Um, there's not a single trilogy I can think of where both of the fighters involved have looked and fought so differently from one fight to the next. Overeem was just entering the heavyweight division uh, in their first fight, and Verdum was training with Mirko Krokop at the time, but was still too timid on the feet to, to show anything resembling kickboxing skill, except in very brief flashes. And uh, he ended up handing over him his first and only submission loss. Second fight came up with the bizarre idea to replicate that by constantly flopping to his back and pulling guard. I think what happened was Verdum, who, like Overeem, I, I think is a bit of a bully mentally, felt the physical strength of Overeem in the clinch. That was fully-fledged Uberim at the time and sort of crumpled and decided that the only way he was going to beat him was to submit him. First fight 
probably a bit of a fluke, at least to the extent that no one else has ever submitted over him. He is, in fact, a very accomplished grappler himself, and I don't expect uh, it wasn't an option against Uberim in that fight. I don't expect the submissions to be a huge play against uh, Overeem in this fight either. Uh, and what was strange about that second fight is that Verdum really was outstriking Overeem for significant portions of the bout, but just didn't have faith in his striking. Now we come to the third fight. Overeem is no longer Uberim. He's medium Reem now. He's small. He's fast. He's adapting to the shaky chin and to the gassing and the sort of bully mindset issues by being like an annoying clown sort of bully now rather than one who gets in your grill and pushes you up against the lockers he's going to hit your mailbox with a baseball bat while you're not home he's going to egg your front door he's going to do anything he can to pester you and keep himself safe while still feeling in control and verdum uh has gotten a lot more confident in his striking a lot more aggressive has honed that killer instinct but now we're starting to see this manifestation of his bully's mindset in that when he breaks, right, when, when Overeem breaks, he crumples, he folds, he falls apart. Some of it's physical, some of it's mental. When Verdum breaks, what you get is a crazy, stupid decision. And I think what we're going to see with the new style matchup between these two fighters is that Overeem is going to frustrate Verdum by running him around, by avoiding all of the engagements. And then Verdum is going to make a mistake that Overeem can capitalize on, I think that mistake is going to take the form of Verdum trying to put the kind of pressure you usually need to put on Overeem to stop him, except I think he's going to run into a shot much like he did against Stipe Miocic. So I also like Overeem to beat Verdum in the rubber match. Jordan Breen, is it unanimous for the Reem? It is. I mean, there's a lot of reasons, I think, that explain why their first two fights have been so bizarre. In the first fight, it was during a phase in, in Overeem's career where he was taking a lot of fights, despite the fact he was clearly injured and was still adapting to a changing body. You can decide for yourself why that body may or may not have been changing. But that fight is absolutely bizarre. Overeem wants no part of really striking with Verdun, who can't really strike with him and just kind of does these koala attacks into the clinch. And eventually Overeem just gave up, allowed Verdun to pull guard and casually Kimura in, in very white belt fashion, which is highly irregular given, um, as has been pointed out, this guy is a very decorated submission grappler. Overeem is, that is not this guy's problem and never has been. As Connor astutely pointed out, uh, Verdun's grappling credentials really haven't come into play in the first two fights. And when you've seen, like, like the first fight was really uh, Overeem giving up. It was like, that's one of the saddest incarnations of this man before he became Uberim. And when he had the giant Uberim body in the second fight, Verdun's best takedown assets, be them foot sweeps, treat, trips, throws, reaps, they all come from the clinch. Overeem like forced him into shooting terrible double legs and just butt scooting almost immediately and wasting a ton of energy in a very lethargic and terrible fight. Here, I, I think as pointed out, Overeem has kind of adapted and tweaked his style, um, becoming a, a bit better of a mover, adapting his defense a bit more around a chin that was shaky at the best of times during his physical prime. And now it's certainly deteriorated more. But I think when you see the kind of performances that he's been able to put in, um, granted, it's been big right hands that always seem to get for Doom first, be it the uppercut from Dos Santos, the overhands uh, that he got caught with with Miocic. 
Overeem, once he once he closes the distance with that lead left hand, it's I mean, both of them are are so equipped and then the first knee can just absolutely destroy someone the way we saw with Mark Hunt. I think that Overeem finds a way to get it done here as well. I don't know if it's the protracted 15 minute battle, which is very, very possible and would be more fitting in line with the two fights we've seen from them uh, um, over the years. But I think this bizarre pride to strike force UFC trilogy gets done. And even if he's not the Uberim anymore, the slightly trimmed down Alistair Overeem is going to get it done, whether he catches Verdun with that shot or whether he's able to stick it out, stick and move and work those long kicks to the body, surge in from time to time with the overhand left and bring the right hand behind it, try to land those knees to the body. He's got the he's got the ability to actually win a 15-minute kickboxing decision where I don't think that's true for Verdum at all. And even if it's a chance that Verdum lands something big, something heavy, it's just as likely, if not more so, than a, I think, shrewdly adapting Overeem uh, would be the one to catch Verdum at this point in time. Verdun may be one of the very, very best ever. I think he gets caught here. And Alistair Overeem wins the rubber match in the trilogy. All right, there you go. Three ballots for Overeem to win the rubber match against Fabricio Verdun. A curious placement for our next heavyweight fight. It's Daniel Emelianchuk versus Curtis Blades. Uh, moved up to the main card after Robbie Lawler versus Donald Cerrone fell off the bill. Um, this is the longest odds of the evening as Blades, a very comfortable favorite, hovering around minus 800 to an Emelianchuk who's at plus 587. Blades uh, now 7-1 and one out of Elevation Fight Team, coming off back-to-back UFC victories, most recently defeating Adam Milstead, Adam Milstead via TKO after Milstead suffered a knee injury. That was February of 2017. And in October, he beat Cody East with a TKO at the end of some elbows. He lost to Francis Ngannou in his UFC debut in April 2016 uh, via TKO doctor stoppage. Omalianchuk, at 34 years old and 19-7-1-1 in his career, uh, is coming off back-to-back losses. Timothy Johnson in May via split decision and St- Stefan Struve via Bravo choke in October. Balance of his UFC career, victories over Alexi Olenek, uh, Jaris Danio, and Krista LaRocha as well as Nandro Gomino in his debut in 2013, and losses to Anthony Hamilton and Jared Rosholt. So Amelianchuk and Curtis Blades here ends up on the main card of UFC 213. UFC perhaps keen on doing something with Curtis Blades. Uh, Jordan Breen, what say you on this heavyweight affair? Well, they should be keen to do something with him. We've seen how good Francis Ngannou's go on has gone on to be, and how if he knocks out Junior DeSantos coming up in Edmonton, I mean, this is a guy on the doorstep of a title shot. Curtis Blades has been the... Really, even though he still got his ass whooped and ended up getting his socked up face stopped by the doctor after 10 minutes, that's still better than anyone else has really done against Francis Ngannou in the UFC. And frankly, when you look at how he's really put it on the other guys that he's fought, you can never have enough heavyweight prospects. And this is a guy who uh, appears to already have the physical ability and wrestling skills to do a lot of damage to more skilled, more established Heavyweights, he's still only 26 years old and has, a, uh, I, I think, like a ton of visible untapped potential. Daniel Milianchuk, I think that the line's a bit silly, but I, I get why it's happening. It's a stylistic thing. Milianchuk is actually a pretty slick striker. He's not a big hitter, especially for a heavyweight, but he's light. He can move around. He can kick with dexterity. He fights southpaw, but... 
none of that's going to matter. Curtis Blaze is going to get to his waist and just suplex the ever-loving shit out of him mercilessly while banging on his head until this thing's over. Kudos to Emilianchuk if he can somehow stem the onslaught enough to make it 15 minutes, but I think this is just going to be suplex after suplex. Rear waist locks getting driven into the fence. Blades is still a very nascent striker, but he can wing him coming forward, but once he gets a hold of your waist, it is time to go for a ride. And Daniel Milianchuk is uh, going to be leaving Las Vegas and going back to Poland, Curtis here, Curtis Blades, and several, several <laughs> suplays. All right. <laughs> Strong ballot for Blades. Uh, Connor Rebush, would you agree? I would agree. Curtis Blades, obviously a top prospect, a baby by heavyweight standards at 26 years old. Uh, as Jordan said, best performance against Francis Ngannou, even if that isn't saying much. And you know he's tough because he tried to lie to the doctor and convince him he could still see when his eye was clearly swollen shut. Wanted to keep that fight going even if he was being beaten. So that says a lot about his potential as a serious contender. If uh, he and Ngannou both continue to be matched well, reasonably, taking reasonable steps as young developing fighters, I am certain we will see Curtis Blades versus Francis, uh, excuse me, Blades and Ganu 2 someday, possibly for a heavyweight title. I know that fight's coming at some point. And I think this is an example of that kind of matchmaking. Omelanchuk is crafty enough to show Blades a few looks on the feet. He's got a few tricks up his sleeve in the clinch that can make Blades' life difficult if he doesn't watch his P's and Q's. But overall, it's a fight that is designed for Blades to win while learning a few things about his uh, striking game, which continues to come together over time. I like Blades to get a TKO, which would, I think, be the first of Omelanchuk's career. So that would also be a statement. Look for that. There you go. Uh, Anthony Walker, is it unanimous? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Curtis Blades is in this position for a reason. He is one of the future faces of the heavyweight division, and I think it's going to show here. I mean, while Daniel is a is a fine kickboxer, uh, he he's very skilled, and and he's had some some good wins in, in his career. But uh, Curtis Blades is just a different sort of athlete. He and he also has options. Uh, Curtis Blades could take him down at any time he feels like it, and I think he has enough striking to get on the inside and just throw him down. And if he gets him down, it's not going to be uh, the way it was with Alexei Olenek. It's not going to be you know some sort of grappling exchange. It's going to be beat down. It's going to be just elbows and fists slammed into his face and his body until the, the ref stops it or his corner throws in the towel. Definitely a rough night in the offing for Daniel Amelianchuk. Curtis Blades, the strong pick from all three panelists. Which brings us to our co-main event of UFC 213. It's to crown an interim middleweight champion as Michael Bisping recovers from knee surgery and um, the potential George St. Pierre fight gets batted about. But we'll see Daniel White saying the winner of this fight will face Bisping. Um, We'll see what that accounts for. Uh, as the months develop. Whitaker now 26 years old out of Australia, 18 and 4 in his pro campaign, has looked sterling in the UFC, uh, seven consecutive victories, most recently knocking out Jacare on Fox April 15th of this year via second round uh, TKO off head kick and punches. Derek Brunson, Javier Natal, Uriah Hall, Brad Tavares, Clint Hester, and Mike Rhodes make up the balance of the campaign for a uh, Robert Whitaker who has only lost in the UFC to Stephen Thompson and Court McGee debuted against Bradley Scott at the end of an Ultimate Fighter season that he participated on, the Smashes season, uh, where he defeated Scott to win, uh, got a bit of that tough shine in 2012, and then beat Colton Smith 
uh, in the follow-up fight. So, tremendous win streak, great win over um, Jacare here, taking on Yoel Romero, the soldier of God, 40 years old, of course, Olympic silver medalist in wrestling, 12-1 in pro MMA, riding an equally impressive win streak. His last victim was Chris Weidman at UFC 205 in Madison Square Garden, just one of the most crushing flying knees you'll ever see, uh, putting a stop to that fight at 24 ticks of the third frame, and down goes the former middleweight champion. Uh, Romero now prepared to challenge for the title. Prior to that, his own victory over Jacare, though a bit more uh, closely contested, we could say. A split decision win at UFC 194. Leota Machida, Tim Kennedy, Brad Tavares, Derek Brunson, Honey Marks, and Clifford Starks. The only loss of Romero's career was to Hafiel Feijão in Strike Force, where he got caught with a knockout punch in the second frame in 2011. A real killer of a middleweight fight for the interim middleweight crown here. Whitaker and Romero, Jordan Breen, who do you like? I mentioned I was saving up some gut picks for earlier. From earlier, I said I had a quota. This is one of them. Robert Whitaker is a spectacular fighter. I remember saying on my show a few years ago, and he's still at 185. Probably already had four or five pro fights. I was someone had actually phoned in and asked if there were any good like prospects coming from like Australia or anything, and I was like, technically not Australian, but like this is the guy. When he got on tough, I was like, this is the guy. And I think it speaks volumes, not just when you look at a fight like what he did with Derek Brunson and look at how he came back in a fight. But when you look at, say, the loss to Court McGee in in a close, tough, gritty veteran type battle as a young fighter that he was very competitive in or how he got boxed up by Wonder Boy Thompson and how he's completely reinvented himself, grown into his middleweight body and blossomed as like the prospect that so many people, myself included, thought he was. There are a million reasons that he could and should win this fight. He's a betting favorite. It's not just the youth. He is a brilliant boxer, one of the very best in mixed martial arts who are like are, you know, who aren't just specialists in terms of real consummate MMA fighters. He his hands, the, the jab, the the hand speed, the combinations behind it, the way he's become an incredibly effective kicker and is able to mix that into punctuate combinations. This dude is the whole package and if you've seen the long stretches of time that people have success against you all Romero, uh, whether it's Derek Brunson going up two rounds and doing it with wrestling largely, whether it's Tim Kennedy getting robbed by the, the Cuban water Vaseline fiasco, whatever the case might be, there are a million vulnerabilities in this man who's allegedly 40 years old. Who the hell knows? But something gives me pause. It's not, it's, it's, Hard. It's hard to say because so much Yoel Romero offense is this whirling dervish type aspect that we've actually seen Whitaker have success in. But so so help me, even if it flies in the face of reason, technique, all of the virtues that make Robert Whitaker uh, an outstanding middleweight, and I think uh, one for years to come. He very well may starch Yoel Romero up with a single shot, a series of shots, something close, something from distance. This man is a versatile striker whose game is defensively built to buttress that, keep him upright, or he's on top beat. You know, he can do all these things to you, Romero. But like I said, it's, it's the gut quota. I somehow feel like we're, we're going for a ride. We're going to get a flying Maha Sakurai knee out of somewhere and Wicker's head just goes flying out of the T-Mobile arena. <laughs> or you all Romero picks him up in a fireman's carry and knocks him with a death alley driver, which technically <laughs> wouldn't be a spike and would be totally legal, which is sad because Jamie Varner did one on Sharon Leggett in the WEC. And I think Steve Mazzagotti like warned him or penalized him for it. That's garbage. 
Not not I, that it's it's legality or illegality is much of a concern of Yoel Romero's. <laughs> no, no, not that not that legality is really a concern of Steve Mazzagatti's either, really. Yeah. <laughs> Nonetheless, I feel like for all Whitaker's virtues and for all the greatness that he may achieve Saturday night or may achieve in the future, I gotta I gotta go with the gutty feeling here. I just feel like Yoel Romero is gonna do something silly, explosive, and we can only hope that we don't get any Mis- mistranslations, mistransliterations, mishearings, misinterpretations of his jubilant, surely post-fight UFC interim middleweight championship title victory. We we certainly don't need another no for gay Jesus situation. Nonetheless, I think you all Romero somehow does something dramatic over 25 minutes, and uh, either he goes flying or Robert Whitaker goes flying. Either way, I think that uh, Romero's hands going up. I like the soldier of God to become your trinket champion and maybe someday meet Michael Bisping. Something silly and explosive. Sounds like a signature night for Yoel Romero. <laughs> the pick of Jordan Breen over Robert Whitaker. Great fight. Connor Rebush, who do you like to leave with the interim hardware? Well, Jordan already made it sound like a night that we will not soon forget. So uh, I don't want <laughs> <laughs> to belabor the point too much. But uh, all the reasons, all the things that Jordan said about Robert Whitaker, those are the reasons I think he is going to win this fight. Uh, I, I'm happy to see like Jordan, that he has really announced himself not just as just like a guy who can get a couple wins at middleweight, who can surprise people, upset a few expectations, but who has proven himself to be a bona fide middleweight contender. And I believe alongside Romero, one of the two best middleweights in the world right now. Um, he's a phenomenally technical boxer. I think that's going to be his big edge in this fight. But a couple things about Robert Whitaker that don't get enough praise. He is also a phenomenal athlete. He's very explosive and powerful. He's fast. Proprioception, balance, timing, all those little sort of intangible things, they come naturally to Robert Whitaker. That much is clear. He's also willing to use that athletic ability to be creative. He is not locked into a standard boxing game. He will do some of the tricky things you see boxing veterans do that break the rules. Things like the lead rights of Mayweather and Bernard Hopkins, uh, leaping across space, knowing that you're throwing yourself off balance, but also knowing that you can keep yourself defensively responsible after landing the strike. You can bank on the surprise of uh, changing up your patterns. Whitaker does those things. He did them brilliantly against uh, Jacques Array. The scary thing about fighting Yoel Romero, as Jordan hinted at, is that he is not a human. He's he's a 3,000-year-old pharaoh trapped inside the body of a 40-year-old Cuban, although really it's the body of a 24-year-old Cuban. And he has sort of he's sort of just a lesson in how effective raw athleticism can be, which is not to say that Romero is not a technically skilled fighter. His wrestling alone is on another level to what we usually see in MMA. But he is so athletic that he has not really ever been forced to restrict himself as a fighter to one style. Most people tend to fall into a certain type of fighting. They like to keep a certain distance. They like to uh, keep a certain amount of pressure. They like to have the initiative. They like to be reacting. Something they prefer. Something they prefer to feel in the midst of a fight. Romero's never really gotten that. He kind of just does things without setting them up. He's got such insane reaction times. He's so capable of seeing an opening and then within the same half second, selecting the correct strike to capitalize on that opening and then throwing the same strike. 
I don't think he saw that many naked takedowns from Chris Weidman in their fight. I don't think he tried a single flying knee before the one with which he knocked Chris out. Uh, He just sees these things and then immediately capitalizes, and it's scary. And for a guy who has, you know, obviously suspect stamina, who often feels compelled to cheat in order to cover up the fact that he needs a couple more seconds to recover, even in the Weidman fight, in which I thought that Romero looked just fine going into round three, he still had his cornerman dump a bunch of water on his legs and chest that needed to be wiped off before the round could resume. So even despite that reputation for gassing, He's also a guy with a reputation for third round knockouts. The round in which he should be at his worst is usually his most dangerous. So there will not be a moment in this fight, no matter how tired Romero looks, no matter how much volume Whitaker puts on him, that Romero will not be capable of knocking Robert Whitaker out. But I think that Whitaker is confident enough, well-rounded enough, and aggressive enough that as the fight goes on, he's going to capitalize on Romero's exhaustion like few other fighters have been bold enough to do. I think Whitaker is going to get a third or fourth round TKO. There's some good old-fashioned dissension. Anthony Walker, it falls to you. Who's right here? Is it Yoel Romero or Robert Whitaker leaving Vegas with the interim middleweight title? Well, as I said at the start of this, um, I think this is the absolute best matchup that that you can imagine in the UFC, aside from uh, Khabib Nurmagomedov versus Tony Ferguson. And as much as I want to talk about it, as much as I love talking about this matchup, and I've talked everyone's head off in earshot of the for the net, for the last like month about this, I've been dreading this moment. I've been dreading talking about this and making an official pick. Um, Robert Whitaker is. I think technically the best skilled fighter in the middleweight division. He is sharp as all hell. He's he's a incredibly good athlete. He he makes a lot of good moves uh, when it comes to just pure fight IQ. I mean, think about Robert Whitaker was able to ice Jacare when uh, essentially nobody was picking him to do that. I, I'm happy to say I was one of the few that picked him in that one. Uh, but also, yeah, even think about the the Uriah Hall fight. That was the one time Uriah Hall has been beaten when he wasn't having a mental lapse. That was Uriah Hall at his at his best, but he just got outclassed. And, and that's something that we just don't see anybody else able to do. Ro- Robert Whitaker is sensational, and I think regardless of this matchup, he's going to be a future champion. That being said, Yoel Romero just defies all sorts of convention. How many times have we seen him apparently completely gassed out with little to no output whatsoever and somehow just come out with an amazing moment that ends the fight. I mean, he's he's MMA's answer to Tim Tebow. The guy just throws a Hail Mary out there and somehow it lands and he also prays. It, it's it's pretty amazing <laughs> what Yoro Romero has been able to do. Um I think about how he was KO'd on his feet versus Tim Kennedy and just came out there and smashed him because it was time to do it and that's all he had to do. Uh Brunson had him pretty much dead to rights he smashed him because that's what he had to do um he uh, would wyman just smashed him because hey it was the third round it was time to do it he casually decided to finish leota machida apparently because he got he got bored of kickboxing with him (laughs) yeah he just like i don't feel like doing this anymore so let me finish this fight when you have somebody that fights like that with his athletic prowess with his wrestling ability uh with a power in his hands and his feet and his knees it is really difficult to pick against him, and for that and that reason alone, I've got to say Yoel Romero walks away with the interim title. There it is. Two ballots for Yoel Romero to become champion, one for Robert Whitaker. Very fitting that we'd have split ballots in a very, very close, well-made, and exciting interim middleweight title fight. 
second from the top on Saturday night, UFC 213, which brings us to our main event for the UFC Women's Bantamweight Championship. It's Amanda Nunez defending against Valentina Shevchenko. Nunez now 29 years old and 14-4 and in her mixed martial arts career, riding a five-fight win streak coming in to this, her second title defense, having defeated Misha Tate for the championship last year at this time at UFC 200 via first round Rinnick chokes admission just blitzing Tate and then blitzing Ronda Rousey to really make her star at UFC 207 on December 30th of last year via first round TKO in just 48 seconds and uh, that is it for Ronda Rousey in mixed martial arts of course these two met at UFC 196 in March of 2016 Amanda Nunez taking the first two rounds rather handily with top control and ground and pound Zivchenko though pulling ahead in the third as Nunez appeared to tire raising all kinds of questions about what will happen with two more rounds tacked on here for the championship uh, that fight um, as uh, came after uh, victories over Sarah McMahon and Shayna Baszler for Amanda Nunez. Her losses have been to Katzengano via TKO in the third round at UFC 178, another instance where she tired down the stretch. Uh, she lost to Sarah Delelio and Invicta uh, Alexis Davis in strike force um, and her very first pro fight to Ana Maria in March 2008. But uh, Amanda Nunez in pole position as the champion against Shevchenko, uh, of course, fighting out of Peru, um, native Russian, 29 years old, 14-2 and two in her pro campaign, a longtime pro kickboxer as well. Shevchenko coming off two impressive victories on high-profile platforms, defeating Juliana Pena on Fox via armbar in the second round. That was in January. And last July, defeating Holly Holm over 25 minutes in the Fox main event. Uh, she lost to Nunes at UFC 196 and defeated Sarah Kaufman in her UFC debut. Uh, that was on the Fox card in December of 2015. A split decision win that night for Shevchenko. Going for the gold on Saturday. And uh, Jordan Breen, please do get us started here for our main event. Women's Bantamweight title on the line. The rematch. Is it Shevchenko or Nunez? Another reason I've been saving up on the gut pick. I I, I look at the matchup, and and like so many people, I think there's be it's become like so pat to hear it, hearing how people sized up the first fight. Oh, you know, she tired down the stretch. Shevchenko was taking her school in the third round, all of which is true. But there's that real sticky fact that in round two, Amanda Nunes absolutely savaged her. And that was a that was a ten eight round. Straight up, that she just rained down brutal punishment, ripped Valentina Shevchenko's face open, threatened her with rear naked chokes, and that's how I feel. I like I do think that Valentina Shevchenko is all the way around a better technician than Amanda Nunes is. That's not to say that Amanda Nunes isn't technically skilled, and I think since since she made the dedication to become a full time fighter. It's it's she's grown leaps and bounds, um, even if there are some inconsistencies we've seen. It's not the kind of complete collapses we've seen against like people like Sarah Delelio in the past. It's not that we're talking about her losing a round to Valentina Shevchenko, who, as we've come to find out and uh, vis-a-vis what we're talking about now is pretty damn good. She's definitely and, and really she's someone that could be the best 125er in the world for all we know. And she's doing this at 135. But Amanda Nunes just have, has a level of dynamism that I, that I find hard to overlook. And even though I think Valentina Shevchenko is going to win exchanges, I think her she's, she's a much better combination striker on the whole. When Amanda Nunes blitzes, she's like a, like a fairly standard jab cross and hook puncher. But man, oh man, like her left hand's like a taser and her right hand is... <laughs> much higher caliber caliber material the way that she's able to hurt people the damage she's able to do when she gets on top of people you know we've talked several times over these two cards about various fighters who 
because of their striking prowess, maybe don't get credit for how they can actually articulate those same techniques while standing over someone or being in guard or being in half guard or whatever the case might be. Amanda Nunes is certainly one of them. You know, she's a good grappler, but the submission stoppages she racks up, they're on account of just beating the ever-loving shit out of people, and they become essentially mercy kill taps, what you see in the Misha Tate fight. And in the Valentina Shevchenko's uh, first fight, second round, I think you see, you know, like it's, she didn't take her back because of incredible grappling acumen. She forced Valentina Shevchenko to give up her back. She was doing a ton of damage to her. So I fully anticipate that if Amanda Nunes doesn't get an early stoppage, there is going to be a struggle. You know, if after 10 minutes, maybe she's up, maybe they split the first two rounds. We know we're going to be in for a fight because Valentina Shevchenko is going to carry longer stretches of the fight. She's a real eight-point striker. She can get takedowns of her own because of how crafty she is with foot sweeps and trips from inside the clinch. But even then, this is a 25-minute fight for someone who I think both fighters have improved. But I think Nunez has really improved in terms of the actual uh, uh, fitness management aspect, the cardio management, knowing how to pace herself, knowing when to explode. And I think even if this goes into rounds three, four, five, and Valentina Shevchenko is coming with higher volume and starting to come on strong, Amanda Nunes still is the more predatory, dynamic entity who can land one giant shot and take someone's lights out or one big shot and stun them and rush them with a fight-ending salvo. Valentina Shevchenko, her, her most likely path to, to a stoppage is still ultimately surprising a tired Nunes with a submission. And I think that's a much less likely scenario than in a long, drawn-out competitive battle, Nunez landing something powerful late, something that I do think, even if she got tired, she's not going to be the kind of gas, desperate, and frozen-up entity we've seen in the past. Valentina Shevchenko very well, very well may get her hand raised here. I think she's one of the four best women in the entire sport. But Amanda Nunes is just a, lot, a little higher up on the pedestal. What's brought her to the dance is that kind of dynamic power. It's what's so uncommon. It's what sets her apart. It's what made her taking the title and then defending against Ronda Rousey and, and the way she took it against Misha Tate so damn brutal. Never mind the other people in her wake before, the Sarah McMahons and Shayna Baszler's and the like. She's not going to do Valentina Shevchenko like that. But... You know, maybe in a fashion similar to the scorecards we saw in the first fight with Tyron Woodley and Stephen Thompson. Sometimes even if you're not controlling long periods of the fight, if you're the more dynamic property, if you're the one that can explode and do massive fight-ending damage, especially with a keener eye towards scoring 10-8 rounds, a 25-minute decision for a Nunez who has a couple big, massive ass-kicking rounds is not out of the equation to me. I think Amanda Nunes has a, a surprising amount of ways to win, even if I don't think she is the well-rounded super technician than Valentina Shevchenko is, even if I see so many places on tape where Shevchenko can catch her and put these combinations together. I think eventually the power strikes and manifests in some way. Don't know if it happens early or late, but I like the Lions to retain the title. All right, there is a pick for Amanda Nunes to retain in the main event. Uh, the odds have closed quite a bit. Uh, Initially, Shevchenko slightly favored at this po at this point, just about pick odds across the board for this women's bandweight championship rematch and main event. Anthony Walker, is it Lioness or is it Valentina Shevchenko? Uh, I've got I've got Nunez winning this one. I mean, this is um, just imagine you're fighting somebody the the caliber of Nunez with that level of power, 
with the relentless aggression with just devastating force and strength that she presents uh, and that that high pressure and the, and the pace. Um, now, of course, if you have the idea that she's going to gas after the 10 minute mark, fine. You survive that 10 minute mark. Barely. You barely survive that 10 minute mark. Are you willing to do it again? Are you willing to take that chance one more time? And that's what we're asking Valentina Shevchenko to do. Um, and that seems to be the general reasoning uh, among a lot of people is that, uh, well, Shevchenko can just outlast her. I don't think it's going to be that simple. Outlasting Amanda Nunes, especially the version of Amanda Nunes that we see now, is no easy task. I mean, when you talk about just perfection and how she lands her punches, it's insane how everything is at the end of all of her strikes. Watch the Rousey fight and see how Rousey's head is bouncing back and forth as Nunez perfectly, perfectly extends her arms to land every single strike. You know, um, look at how Misha Tate, who is the, the uh, excuse me, the queen of, of comebacks, the queen of, of outlasting damage and coming back and, and, and doing something good, couldn't stand it. And she got iced. I, I think if you put Valentina Shevchenko in that same position that she was in in that second round of getting hammered away at from top position, from getting nearly choked out and her face bloodied up and battered, I don't think she makes it out this time. Granted, if she does make it out this time, yeah, she could pull off a decision. Yeah, she could pull off a late submission. I just don't see it being likely. And, and I give credit to Jordan big time because I didn't even think of the possibility of this fight going the way uh, Wonder Boy and Woodley did, where, you know, control for long bouts of the round don't matter if those control bits from the other party are that much more devastating. That's a strong possibility, too. And Valentina Shevchenko's methods to victory are much more limited than Amanda Nunes. Uh, and and I think even, even if it does go further into the distance, I mean, Amanda Nunes, um, I think her cardio should be better. She's been working on this and trying to fix that gap since the Shevchenko fight, since uh, the Katzengano fight as well. The, she's been trying to piece this together. Um, so now she's had she's had all this. She's trained for several five rounders before now, and her cardio fails her at this moment. I, I, I'm just not buying it. I, I think Amanda Nunes wins, and I think she wins big. Uh, I give it to her probably the early third round. There we go. Two strong ballots for the champion to retain. Connor Rebush, wrap this up for us. Got a little more dissent here in the main event. I like Valentina Shevchenko here. I appreciate the Jordan pointed out that it's become a little pat, a little easy to just say, well, you know, look at the first fight, Shevchenko outlasted Nunez. What happens if there's two more rounds? But I do think that is kind of the pressing question for this fight. I mean, we had a story of two very different bouts in that first battle. We had Amanda Nunez very nearly finishing Shevchenko in the second. We had her tiring badly, and we had uh, Valentina Shevchenko struggling a little bit to get her offense going. I think she's a counterpuncher to a fault at times and has trouble leading, but still doing a lot of damage. If we're conceding that Amanda Nunes maybe should have gotten a 10-8 round in the second, then I think we should also say that the Valentina Shevchenko could have gotten a 10-8 round in the third. She really did have her way with Amanda Nunes in that final frame. Uh, I, I think about with so many X factors, right? Like, obviously, Amanda Nunes has huge power. Obviously, Shevchenko is very tough and very crafty. Uh, it's very difficult to know, you know, will she finish her this time? Will she not? Will she come out more patiently? We have to go with the little bits of concrete evidence that we have. And I have concrete evidence to suggest that Valentina Shevchenko can 
outlast Amanda Nunes. I have concrete evidence to suggest that she is crafty and durable enough to uh, to survive an onslaught. And I also have concrete evidence to suggest from not just the first Nunes fight, but several of her other bouts in the UFC, that Shevchenko is the kind of fighter who, because she relies on reading her opponent's intentions, timing counterpunches, gets better as the fight goes on. I think each successive round after that third, Shevchenko would have been more comfortable, more fluid with her combinations, more capable with her takedown defense. I thought we were seeing the start of a momentum shift that was interrupted by the fact that it was only a three-round fight. And I don't like Amanda Nunes' chances to survive that momentum shift. While it's very possible that she finishes Shevchenko, she came very close in the first fight. If she doesn't, I think... Her problems with stamina are so persistent in the past. It's been basically the only way she's ever lost fights. And her only close fight in the last few years was that one with Shevchenko. And it was for the same reason. She's just not a three-round fighter. And I don't think the issues are just fitness with Nunes. I don't think I, I think she can say, I'm a full-time fighter now. I'm going to be better conditioned. I'm going to pay a lot more attention to my nutrition. I think those things are kind of band-aids. Because I think the real problem is that Nunes is the kind of fighter who gasses, like a Tyron Woodley. She throws everything with power. She's very explosive. She's very athletic. And that is her greatest strength. The problem is, is that she doesn't have the discipline to make the best use of it against a really resilient opponent. And so when an opportunity to finish arises, she tends to pour what could be 25 minutes of well-measured stamina. Like 90% of that, she'll pour into the first round or two trying to get the finish. And then she's got nothing left. Even if she comes in perfectly well-conditioned, just the way she fights will not allow her to go crazy crazy for two rounds and then still fight to the best of her ability in the third. Shevchenko is patient to a fault at times. She's composed. She's never had an issue with stamina. She's uh, unlike people like Misha Tate and Ronda Rousey, very difficult to just go and blitz her on the feet because she's one of the best technical strikers uh, in this division, if not the best. So I like Shevchenko to survive a few scares uh, get attacked by Nunez, but I think ultimately the ferocity of those early attacks will be Amanda Nunez's undoing. I think Shevchenko will either win a decision or possibly get a sort of attritive referee stoppage TKO in the fourth or fifth round. And there you have it, the final pick there for Valentina Shevchenko to become the U. UFC Women's Bantamweight Champion defeating Amanda Nunez in the capper of a big international fight week weekend for the Ultimate Fighting Championship, UFC 213, Saturday night on pay-per-view. And that will do it for another edition of the SRN Roundtable. A great marathon run here through everything we've got for you on Friday and Saturday night on the Tough 25 finale on Fox Sports 1 and UFC 213 on pay-per-view. And a quick review of the picks before we get you out of here. Of course, our panelists, SureDog.com Administrative Editor Jordan Breen, SureDog Contributor and um, Heavy Hands co-host Connor Rebush, as well as SureDog Radio Contributor Anthony Walker. Here are your rundowns uh, for Friday night. It starts on UFC Fight Pass for the Tough 25 finale prelims at Women's Strawweight. Tisha Torres faces Juliana Lima. All three panelists like Tisha Torres there. And then the other Fight Pass bout on Friday, Gray Maynard faces Taruto. Isihara that at featherweight, all three panelists like the Japanese fighter Isihara. Fox Sports 1 prelims on Friday open with Jessica I versus Aspen Ladd. All three panelists like Aspen Ladd to defeat the veteran I. Ed Herman versus C.B. Dalloway at 205 pounds saw split ballots as uh, we saw picks for uh, C.B. Dalloway from Jordan Breen and Anthony Walker, while Conor Bush saw the path to victory for Ed Herman. James Krause versus Tom Galicchio in Tough 25 runners-up. All three panelists like Krause and a welterweight bout to get his hand raised. And the final prelim on Friday night will be Angela Hill versus Ashley Yoder at women's straw weight. Angela Hill, the 
pick of all three panelists. Main card on Friday kicks off with Jordan Johnson versus Marcel Fortuna at 205 pounds. All three panelists like Jordan Johnson to remain undefeated. At middleweight, it's Brad Tavares versus Elias Theodoro. Tavares the pick of Conor Rebush and Anthony Walker, while Jordan Breen likes the Canadian Theodoro to come through. At 205 pounds, Jared Cannonier welcomes Nick Rohick to the UFC. All three panelists like Cannonier to get his hand raised there and comfortably. Mark Diacase looks to extend his undefeated streak against Ricard Close. All three panelists like the Brit to do that and pick Diacase rather handily. Diego Lima faces Jesse Taylor in the tough 25 finale fight at 170 pounds. And all three panelists like Jesse Taylor to steamroll over Lima and get the tough 25 hardware. No, pardon me. I need to make a correction there. Um, it was not unanimous. In fact, Conor Rebush going for Lima over Taylor. Anthony Walker and Jordan Breen liking uh, JT Money. Sorry about that. And in the main event, Michael Johnson welcomes Justin Gaethje to the UFC, and it will be a rude welcome, according to all three panelists, as they like Michael Johnson to get his hand raised in the main event on FS1 Friday night. That kicks us over to Saturday, UFC 213, also from T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas, opens up with the fight pass prelim at 205 pounds as Trevin Giles makes his UFC debut against a fellow UFC debutant and James Bohovnich. All three panelists like Giles to get his hand raised, Giles, pardon me. At featherweight, Cody Stammen faces Terry and Ware. All three panelists. Actually, no, Stammen was the pick um, for Jordan Breen. And Connor Rebush and Anthony Walker both like Terry and Ware to make a successful UFC debut. Headline in the fight past prelims on Saturday night is Rob Font versus Douglas Silva D'Andrage. At bantamweight, all three panelists like Rob Font to get his hand raised. Fox Sports 1 prelims on Saturday night kick off with Jordan Meehan versus Bilal Muhammad at 170 pounds. All three panelists like Muhammad to get the victory there. At middleweight, Tiago Santos faces Gerald Mearshart. All three panelists like the Brazilian Santos. At 170 pounds, Chad Laprise as a late replacement takes on Brian Camozzi. All three panelists like the Canadian Laprise to get the victory. And in the final prelim of the weekend, Travis Brown versus Alexi Olenek at heavyweight on Fox Sports 1. All three panelists like Travis Brown to get around the crafty submissions of the Russian and get his hand raised. Pay-per-view main card kicks off at 155 pounds. Anthony Pettis returning to the division he once lorded over to face Jim Miller. And there are two ballots for Pettis from Jordan Breen and Anthony Walker, while Connor Rebush likes the underdog in Jim Miller to get his hand raised. Fabricio Verdum faces Alistair Overeem in a heavyweight rubber match, and all three panelists like Alistair Overeem to get the victory over the former UFC title holder. Daniel Amelianchuk versus Curtis Blades at heavyweight, also on the main card Saturday. All three panelists like the heavyweight prospect Blades to get another victory. Second from the top on the pay-per-view Saturday night, Yoel Romero and Robert Whitaker for the UFC interim middleweight championship. Romero is the pick of Jordan Breen and Anthony Walker, while Conor Rebush likes the Australian Robert Whitaker to get his hand raised. And in our main event, Amanda Nunez defends the UFC Women's Bantamweight Championship and rematch against Valentina Bullet Shevchenko. Shevchenko is the pick to become the new champion from Conor Rebush, while Jordan Breen and Anthony Walker like Lioness Amanda Nunez to retain her gold. You do want to keep it locked to SureDog.com and the SureDog Radio Network all weekend for complete International Fight Week coverage. Of course, we're on the ground in Las Vegas and we'll have your live play-by-play of both the Tough 25 finale Friday night and UFC 213 on Saturday night with live scoring and all that coverage you've come to expect. Beatdown after the bell with TJ DeSantis immediately following UFC 213 on pay-per-view Saturday night. We will see you then, and thank you for joining us for another SRN Roundtable. Do enjoy the Tough 25 finale and UFC 213. The preceding podcast was a TJ DeSantis production. Comments, questions, and inquiries can be directed to desantisprod at gmail.com.